Hi, fellow Westorians. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea, and this is Valariridus. A Dance with Dragons is the longest of the books so far. It's also the darkest and least understood, thanks to being the most recent. It's the culmination also so far of George R. R. Martin's style, honed over the course of the prior books and the rest of his career. It has the extended length of A Storm of Swords, the expanded pacing of A Feast for Crows. It brings POVs together like A Clash of Kings and has the setup of A Game of Thrones. If you're watching live, you can feel free to ask live questions. You can also send questions and comments ahead of time, as some of you did, by joining us on one of our social media outlets. Facebook is our largest group. There's about 3,000 people. Not everyone is active. That's the nature of Facebook groups, but some people come in and out. I want to give it a particular shout out right now because with Christmas season coming up, there's a thread rolling of indie shops, independent, mostly a Song of Ice and Fire themed, but not all, stuff that um, people in the community wanted to share, some of which are the shops are actually owned by some of the people posting them within the community. So that's a good opportunity to do some uh, support, some smaller creators, people that don't have, you know, people who aren't Amazon. (laughs) So check that out if you are on Facebook, especially if you're already in our group. And if not, that's a good reason to join. Also check us out on Flick. Every chapter is posted there every week and there's great discussion. Same goes for Discord. There's lots of other discussions happening in Discord as well. Same goes for Slack though that one is for patrons only. Make sure to check out the Isle of Faces podcast. That's Joe Buckley's show. He calls his Valar Reredus tandem episodes Scraps and Scrolls. And also check out Nina Friel on Tumblr. She is known as Good Queen Alley. That's with one L. And both of their thoughts and takes are all throughout this episode. So if you're in all and previous episodes, so if you want more of that, well, you know where to go. Okay, today we have Tyrion Seven, the one with Benero and the widow of the waterfront of Volantis, aka the smallest man casts the largest chapter. John Six, a vision of Arya is a vision of Alice, aka a duel with Rattleshirt is a duel with Mance. And Davos Four, the one where the North remembers, aka pack your bagos for Skagos, Davos. Writing old wrongs is the first theme I want to point out today. It's a pervasive theme in Volantis where the notion of an end to the old order, the end to slavery is very important. Talk about writing a wrong. It's hard to go bigger than writing the wrong of slavery. This is alongside Tyrion and Jorah, two men on the run from justice, one of them over slavery. (laughs) And Tyrion wants revenge on his family for for what wrongs they've done to him. And Jorah wants to right the wrongs he's done to Danny by giving her Tyrion. Mans can't help himself in beating John badly in the yard while disguised as Rattleshirt, laughing and taunting him. He's got a lot of reason to be mad at John, though. He also understands why John did what he did. He's not going to right any of those wrongs today, but he makes it known that he remembers, and he gets to wail on one of the people who put him in the spot he's in. For a little satisfaction, it helps. On the heels of Deepwood Mott's return to the Glovers and Willis Manderley's return to White Harbor, the Manderleys are ready to get to work on righting quite a few wrongs in the North. The North remembers, etc. Of course, they needed a mute ironborn kid to remember, but hey, it, it happened. 
And if Davos succeeds in bringing Rickon back from Skagos, well, that would be another wrong righted, it seems. With that, captivity is another theme of note. The Tyrion's is as straightforward as it gets. This is the chapter where he's put in manacles, groundwork for more official slavery later in the book. Davos is in prison, so that's also as straightforward as it gets. But in John's chapter, it's more of the metaphorical sort of prison. He's a servant to his duties, a slave to his morals. It's highlighted in this chapter more so than any of these others, which is really saying something because it's a major theme in John's arc to this point in general, his whole arc. However, like I said, Tyrion isn't truly a slave, not yet. Jorah wants everyone around to think that. And Davos isn't truly a prisoner. Wyman Manderly just wants everyone around to think that. So keep that in mind. Lost loves are briefly touched upon. John sees Melisandre as Ygritte for a moment. And Tyrion's thoughts are never far from Tysha and Orshay and others. And Davos thinks he's going to die and writes a parting letter to his wife, Maria. He, for a moment, along with readers, thinks he's about to see Rickon, only to see Wex instead. Not exactly a lost love, but that is a misdirection. And with those misdirections in mind, there's also a strong theme of things are not as they seem today. Davos is highly misled about what's going on in White Harbor before this glorious epic reveal of the real story, not to mention the reveals about some of the darker parts of the North's past. Blood sacrifices are mentioned by Sir Bartimus and remembered by the trees. Meanwhile, John deals with all sorts of misdirection, pretty much all of it from Melisandre, as we're given a host of glamours and the situations that are caused by said glamours. John fights man thinking it's Rattleshirt and is told of visions of his sister when it's truly Alice Karstark, not to mention her trick with Ghost and appearing to look like Ygritte for a moment. Tyrion is under the impression he's being taken to the Queen, which is true, but he's got the wrong Queen in mind. On a pun intended smaller scale, he thinks Penny is a man at first. Not to mention Volantis itself is not as it seems. For example, there are lots of slaves and we're told chains are cheaper than day-old bread, but in many ways, the chains are about as binding as day-old bread, or they will be if Daenerys Targaryen shows up, which the widow of the waterfront wants. And even she pitches in a bit here. At first, she's unwilling to help Jorah and Tyrion get to the Dragon Queen, as Jorah's devotion to knightly ideals is clearly lacking, and Tyrion is, well, a Lannister, and the world knows that Lannisters and Targaryens are not friends, thanks to Tywin's slaying of the royal prince and princess. Tyrion truly is against his family now, something we know very well. After all, he really did kill Tywin, and everyone thinks he killed Joffrey. But to the widow of the waterfront half a world away, it's not quite so obvious. More importantly, though, you may have heard the expression turned on a dime, but the widow of the waterfront turned on a penny here. Not the dwarf's penny, but the dwarf penny. The death of her brother, Groat, at the hands of men looking to claim the very reward Jorah is clearly not after was a bit of a surprise to her. She was right to question Jorah's devotion to knighthood, but his devotion to Danny must be real after all because he's clearly foregoing a reward of lordship at Cersei's hands by taking Tyrion to Danny for forgiveness instead. And that is very telling. Relore comes up so very often, and today that flame burns particularly bright, and those shadows cast by it are in turn particularly dark. It's almost amusing that Davos, whose king is the one openly devoted to Relore, has a chapter today, but his is the one where Relore doesn't really come up. It's the others. 
The Red God did come to mind for Asha as she was losing to Stannis in the last chapter of last week. And that plot development is important setup for Davos's chapter here. As we'll see in John's chapter, it's almost Melisandre's chapter as she demonstrates or speaks to a wide variety of her own available magics, all attributed to R'hllor, yet curiously boosted the wall. And for Tyrion, his story continues to be a vehicle to set up other storylines as it tours through the massive city of Volantis, home to the largest red temple in the world, where we see part of a sermon by the head priest. Though it's the longest chapter in the book, it stands out enough that I just had to make it part of our homemade title. Tyrion 7, the one with Benero and the widow of the waterfront of Volantis, a.k.a. the smallest man casts the largest chapter. The twist in this chapter is fun, a bit reminiscent of the one we just had in Quentin's chapter, where the POV is worried about the consequences of one plan, of being executed and or tortured, only to learn that they're being forced to go to a destination they were already going to of their own volition. In both cases, there's a huge urge to laugh. Quentin almost bursts out laughing, same with Tyrion. And for both of them, it's the same destination, Daenerys. Actually, I think Tyrion does burst out laughing. (laughs) It's a grand tour of Volantis. They enter the city gates on the eastern side, walk all the way through that, walk to the Long Bridge, cross the Rhoyne, then walk to the litter of the waterfront on the west side. West side. Another example of George incorporating world building directly into the storytelling. It's really well done. Nina notes that the opening of Tyrion's chapter here, he's tied up and lashed to Mormon's saddle as he's riding to what he assumes will be a you know, sail to the Lannisters. It's a little similar to Sandor throwing Arya um, on the back of his saddle. And she's also assuming that she's going to be sold to the Lannisters. Of course, in both cases, the captives are wrong. Both were going to be sold, but not to the Lannisters. Also, like Catelyn seizing Tyrion at an end, it's a bit of a callback there. Tyrion does things in pairs, I guess. Two siblings, two dragon claimants, two times getting captured at an inn, two stints in prison, two trials by combat. There's probably some more. There's surely some more, but you get the point. You might say the through line of this chapter is the lives of slaves. Young and old, current and former. It's like the way Makoro talks about dragons to him later. And just like with Makoro talking about dragons later, Tyrion's right in the thick of it. He too is basically a slave. This chapter could be said to be the size of two chapters. It's so big, 66 minutes. It's the longest in the book, as I said. It's the third longest in all of the series so far including the chapters we haven't gotten to yet. So when I say so far, I mean published chapters. And I don't think any of the Winds of Winter chapters are nearly that long either. Of course, those are subject to change, so we can't be too sure. Crescent's Prologue and Elaine II of Feast for Crows are the other two longest ones, in case you've forgotten. So that's why we've nicknamed it The Smallest Man Casting the Largest Chapter, a reference to Varys saying the same about Tyrion, The Smallest Man Casting the Largest Shadow. Given all the talk of R'hllor in this chapter, it seems to be fitting to have a reference to flame and shadow. In this chapter, he is the smallest man we've seen, and it is the largest city we've seen. Because, yeah, don't forget, King's Landing is huge, but Volantis is huger. We start off with a series of George's wonderful descriptions. By the time they reached Volantis, the sky was purple to the west and black to the east, and the stars were coming out. 
He's gone from the son of the Warden of the West, the son of the Hand, the Hand himself, a member of the new royal family, to being tied up on the back of a horse and carried through the gates like a bag of oats. All of his prestige and dignity has never been further away. Even when he was jammed in the wine cask, it was that was less comfortable, but at least no one saw that. Almost no one. So he's in a completely new world. He sees the stars and notices they're the same. But for him, the world is very different. And Nina points out the purple-black coloring there is really, in, is really neat. Symbolically, Volantis itself is famous for its black walls, which is where the Valyrian-blooded people rule from. And to the east, rather, to the west, is the actual most dominant free city, Bravos. It's really more to the northwest, but still, it's to the west. And their colors are purple, right? Their sails. And they're very much in opposition. Of course, Bravos is founded by escaped slaves whose number one law, if you're, you know, it'd be like the First Amendment, if you're thinking of the U.S. Constitution, the first law of Bravos is slavery is <clears throat> no. And of course, Volantis is effectively nothing without its slaves. It, it's built itself to function on slaves and without that, well, who knows what's going to happen, but it'll be a very different place if it survives at all. The sky, the areas around the city walls and then along the river and then into the meaner parts of the city where they again trot upon grass and see abandoned buildings and naked children. So there's lots of cool features here. There's a, a lot of descriptions. This, this chapter, we probably pulled more quotes than any chapter in quite a while. And a lot of it's just because the writing is so neat it's because of the, the descriptions are so beautiful. This chapter reminds me of Catelyn's chapters in A Clash of Kings and, to a lesser extent, A Storm of Swords, because we noted at the time that, that her chapter seemed to have the most glorious descriptions of landscapes and mountains and sunsets and things like that. This feels like a match for that in terms of its incredible detail and expressiveness, but it's inside a city rather than, in Catelyn's cases, these were more like landscapes and out in the world. So it's a bit different, but similar in terms of its richness. So after one part of the city, then they're back again into a prosperous part of the city, inns, wider streets, better lighting. But they're also on the eastern side of the river to start off with, which is where the city was founded. It's richer, it's more established, and it's also where foreigners are less welcome. Eventually, they head to the Long Bridge, one of the nine man-made wonders of the world. And it reminds us of Dragonstone, this quote, the gateway to the Long Bridge was a black stone arch carved with sphinxes, manticores, dragons, and creatures stranger still. Yeah, that's the first thing we see about Dragonstone, basically, when Crescent is describing it to us in his chapter. I wonder about this. Can George resist blowing this bridge up? It's so huge and old and epic. I wonder if our widely predicted doom of Volantis is going to include destruction of the bridge. Because, of course, when we say doom of Volantis, we don't mean like it's going to blow up like the doom of Valyria where there's volcanoes. There will be conflagrations quite possibly, but I don't know that it'll be enough to take down the bridge. I think it would take a lot of dragon fire to do that. But it's possible, eh, right? It's definitely possible. It's quite a marvel. Whether it's destroyed or not, it's, it's incredible in its detail, its variety of sights and smells and sounds. And 
there was perhaps supernatural means to build it, it itself is not supernatural in any way. And here's this awesome quote. Buildings rose to either side of them, shops and temples, taverns and inns, Sivos parlors and brothels. Most were three or four stories tall, each floor overhanging the one beneath it. Their top floors almost kissed. Crossing the bridge felt like passing through a torchlit tunnel. Along the span were shops and stalls of every sort, weavers and lace makers displaying their wares, cheek by jowl with glass blowers, candle makers, and fishwives selling eels and oysters. Each goldsmith had a guard at his door, and every spicer had two, for their goods were twice as valuable. Here and there, between the shops, a traveler might catch a glimpse of the river he was crossing. To the north, the Rhoyne was a broad black ribbon, bright with stars, five times as wide as the Blackwater Rush at King's Landing. South of the bridge, the river opened up to embrace the briny sea. Five times as wide as the Blackwater Rush at King's Landing. That is so big. I mean, think about how big the Blackwater Rush was. It was large enough for Stannis' entire fleet to sail up it and drop men off on the shore. I mean, warships could sail up it several at a time. Not like the whole fleet, you know, in a line, but quite a few at once. So that's, this is just enormous. It's really hard to fathom. (laughs) Fathom. Yes. Halfway up the bridge, we see slave bodies on display. One of them was executed for fomenting rebellion for the Dragon Queen, one of just a bajillion clues for that sort of, that plot line, basically. And another one, appropriately, killed his father, which, of course, is relevant to Tyrion's arc and something that Jorah likes to bring up. It's important to note the point of the Long Bridge, why it was built. It's yet another monument to slavery, in, in a sense. I mean, it's a bridge, so it's hard to say it's a monument, but it was built to control the slaves. At one point, the city got so large and expanded to the western shore, but that, of course, as we said, is where the quote-unquote less desirable elements are, and it's where a lot of, there's less law, less order, more lawlessness, and so less money, things like that. So you have a situation where they frequently had to send soldiers over to the other side and restore order. Well, it's a lot more efficient to have a bridge to send them over on. Before the bridge, they had to literally go by ship, um, which is pretty inefficient. It's not really... At that point, you would have considered them separate cities. I mean, if there's a river running through and there's no good way to get there, then they'd be considered separate. But with the bridge connecting them, it all it's all Volantis. It all merged into one. So that Nina writes, that legacy still exists on the Long Bridge here. As Tyrion describes it, it's a popular shopping district. It's a market for a wide variety of goods, yet in the middle where no, you can't possibly miss it, is this display of executed slaves. It's a very powerful message. And... It's not quite the same as sending armies back and forth on the bridge, something that isn't necessary in this day and age. All they have to do now is send the occasional warning or remind people who's in charge. And well, executed slaves are a pretty good way to do that in their minds. Certainly uh, draws the eye. 
Another big feature of Volantis is the elephants. We've been hearing about them a lot lately, but it's a familiar device by now. They're brought up in multiple POVs relatively close to each other. And not just the elephants, but that's just something that George does as a story device. He wants to introduce a new concept. He'll bring it up in several different disparate chapters in different ways to prime us for it quickly rather than spreading that out over a long period of time where we might lose the thread. So it's fitting that Volantis is overrun with these white elephants and that these elephants are inextricably associated with slavery. I think we mentioned it briefly before. The white elephant is a term for something you own or control that is so expensive or burdensome or not worth the trouble that it you know, makes you poor. It's, it basically isn't worth it. It drags you down. The original tale of the white, white elephant was, an, it was a gift from an emperor. So the, the person who received it had to keep paying for the elephant or else he would, it would be an insult to the emperor. But the emperor knew what he was doing. He intentionally gave this gift that would impoverish the receiver. And likewise, that is what's happening in Volantis. The city is falling apart, gradually dying because in large part to its issues with slavery. Interestingly too, I wonder if George is telling us something about Illyrio Mopatis here. This is an odd line that from Tyrion, he says for half a heartbeat, he thought he glimpsed Illyrio Mopatis, but it was only one of those white dwarf elephants passing the front door. I wonder if what is maybe being suggested is that Illyrio is going to want a lot as a benefactor. He's going to make significant demands for everything he's done for Daenerys and perhaps others. And keeping him happy or keeping him well-fed or whatever he wants might be more trouble than it's worth. It might be, but more of a moral problem, like associating with this guy, having him as an ally, things like that. Not good. Um, You may owe him favors, but he's not the kind of guy you want to owe favors to. And the actual elephants serve as an excellent segue to the political party elephants. There's a lot of overlap in the themes here. Some of the first elephants were women, she said, the ones who brought the tigers down and ended the old wars. Triana was returned four times. That was 300 years ago, alas. Volantis has had no female triarch since, though some women have the vote. Women of good birth who dwell in ancient palaces behind the black walls, not creatures such as me. That's a really interesting similarity to what happened in Westeros. We have this note of early on in Volantis's history as an independent power, there was, Triana was returned four times, a female triarch. Well, the first king of Westeros, there were two queens, right? And they were the only full queens that no one argued over. Obviously, Rhaenyra is debatable, but there was no civil war under Aegon's sisters. So they were considered full queens. And even the dates are similar 300 years ago, right? 300 years ago is when Aegon's conquest. And of course, the preceding phase that affected pretty much the whole world, at least as it pertains to the areas we're familiar with, was the century of blood. So there was 300 years ago in Aegon's conquest and this, this talk about Volantis hundred years before was the interim period where there was lots of anarchy after Valyria was destroyed and the world was sort of remaking itself with new leaders and new power structures and all that. 
And the closer they get to the famous black walls, the more of these elephants they see, which is, well, that's the source of the problems. This old blood, they're the ones causing all the trouble, essentially. It's, it's kind of a reversal in that they talk about, you know, the slaves causing problems and this and that. But really, it's these laws, this need for emancipation that's causing the problem. It's a re- recurring theme in the real world and in this world. George sort of takes it to another level. But in the real world, when society progresses, a lot of times, one of the main things that prevents progress, cultural progress, sometimes technological progress, sometimes both, are old power structures. Communities may be ready to move on, but those who hold power within communities may not. Because whenever you move on, well, new leaders emerge. Old leaders fall by the wayside. Power is something people don't want to give up. So they have incentive to keep things the old way because the old way is where they have power. They don't think the old way is better for society. It's better for them personally, for their own desires. So George has taken this concept to the extreme by having some of these places, especially in Westeros, locked into these cycles of stagnation because the people keeping it that way, the people maintaining the status quo are particularly keen on keeping it that way and they're particularly cruel and cynical about the means they use to keep it, to actually keep it that way. And Jorah puts us in that rule of three doesn't always work and sometimes results in blood, meaning the rule of three, meaning three triarchs. They, there's an interesting debate here in this chapter about the different styles of rulership, the different styles of, of governance, which might become relevant near the end of the entire series. Jorah points out, well, one good thing about having three triarchs is, well, they've never had a boy ruling them. They may have elected madmen, but when a madman is only one-third of in the power, then it's means to keep that person in check. Westeros has never had that kind of protection. Imagine if there were three kings when Ares was one of the was the mad king. The other two kings might have been able to keep him in check a bit. On the other hand, this is the part of the world still mired in slavery. That's a problem. It's not necessarily a matter of the style of governance doesn't always create the outcomes you might think. A king who has absolute power can end slavery on, on by fire, by executive order. But you would need three, all three triarchs, or maybe two of them, agreeing with such a thing. Not only that, you have the very powerful nobility to deal with. Kings without the backing of the nobility have problems. They can't always get done what they want to get done. This is a long-running, real-world conflict between the nobility and kings or other styles of rulers is a lot of really good kings wanted to make what we would call today good changes in their realm. And they were prevented from doing so because the nobles hold so much power that they were able to pressure or prevent the king from enacting these reforms or from sabotaging the reforms after they went, they went in to make it look like they weren't working. Very often, it's the nobility is the problem. That's the, the reason being it's a group. Group thing can be harder to change than an individual. So it's pick your poison. When you have a good system in the first place, it's better to keep it locked in and that's when it's better to have multiple checks and balances. But when you have a bad system you don't want to lock that in place because it's hard to change. And that's what we have here with Volantis. Volantis is locked into a terrible system and it's eating itself alive. 
Sparta is another great example of that. They had two kings, and Sparta's society collapsed in upon itself because it was unable to change with the times. It was locked into old ways. The old ways caused it to kind of go down the drain. It became harder and harder to become a citizen. When Sparta basically had its final collapse, there were only the number of full citizens and its society was literally in the hundreds. And of course, the rest of the people weren't so happy about being excluded from so many different parts of what normally happens within a society. The same thing is happening in Volantis. The details are different, but it's the same basic problem that power and wealth concentrated in the hands of very few and those people are not ruling well. Like if you had power and wealth concentrated in the hands of the, the very few and they were compassionate and ruled well, it might work. But of course, neither of those things is happening. There's a guy named Donifus running for re-election, but the widow of the waterfront says his odds of winning are worse than her dead husband's odds of winning because Donifus is against war with Daenerys and the rest of them all want that. Quote, Old Volantis, first daughter of Valyria, dwarf mused, proud Volantis, queen of the Rhoyne and mistress of the summer sea, home to noble lords and lovely ladies of the most ancient blood. It's mocking, this, this quote. It sounds like it could be, in different circumstances, something to be proud of, like the quote says, proud Volantis. But really, that's what it was. That is the past. It was those things. I mean, it's still the first daughter of Valyria, but it's been a long time since that mattered. Old blood of Valyria is just a belief. There's nothing innately more powerful about it. It's just the wealth and power they've accumulated prior to the modern times. So this is the, it's interesting how this is, you can trace it all to what's within these black walls. And I wonder if we'll ever get to see inside them or if maybe it'll be destroyed off page. Or I don't know. I think we'll get to see it. Tyrion notes how it's been depopulated from ancient wars. A perfect example of faded glory. And it's a nice parallel to what we saw in Asha's chapter last week. We saw Sea Dragon Point depopulated by ancient wars and possibly by winter. Winter probably didn't have as much impact here, but war definitely did. And in fact, we saw the same ruins or similar style ruins up river, also similar to Sea Dragon Point. Large areas sinking back into the mud here. The same is happening in Bravos with, without as much mud, but there it's inevitable. It's sinking beneath the sea. Here, it's more due to disrepair. It's an extension of the depopulation of the city, the high popular percentage of slaves. It used to be beautiful. You can see half the fountains are dry now, though. There were, you can imagine if they were full and flowing, it would be beautiful. Instead, you have stagnant pools. You have trees that have grown through street tiles and old buildings. And that implies this has been a state, the state of affairs for a while. I mean, trees growing through buildings, that doesn't happen overnight. That's something that happens over the course of years, if not decades. So not just faded glory, but fading glory, still fading. You can see it happening in real time, but it's mixed with a powder keg. Normally, it's not a slow, silent, quiet death. It's, it's simmering. It's, it's boiled, about ready to boil but not just mixed with powder, with this explosiveness, it's mixed with this contempt and this hypocrisy, so much hypocrisy. These are all things Tyrion is very familiar with, <laughs> especially as the son of Tywin, those last two, hypocrisy and contempt. He's had them both aimed at him his entire life, 
by his father. So he knows the smell and sight of those two things quite well. Very sensitive to that. In this, we see more of George R. R. Martin's genius because that description of hypocrisy, contempt, powder keg, faded glory, that applies to George Marmont too. <laughs> he's, he's still formidable, like Volantis, but rotten and not as good as he once was. Driven by desire. That sounds like Jorah, right? A huge hypocrite full of contempt. Sounds like Jorah, right? So in Tyrion, Jorah has found a rare soul. That rare soul who, in his mind anyway, is more contemptuous than he is. Jorah, full of self-loathing, can look at Tyrion and see someone whose crimes are worse than his. Jorah actually makes Tyrion feel a little better about himself. (laughs) Actually, I said that backwards. Tyrion actually makes Jorah feel a little better about himself It is probably true both ways, though, now that I say it. But really, they have a lot in common. A lot more than Jorah would like to admit. I doubt Tyrion would be eager to pursue this line of thinking either, but we're going to do it. The world considers them both physically ugly. Obviously, Tyrion more so than Jorah. But they were both very highborn. Tyrion more so, but Jorah was the actual lord of Bear Island. Now they're both exiles. They're both stripped of their inheritance and... In well, they're together, so they're certainly, that's a parallel, they're in the same location. They were both major disappointments to their fathers. They're both exiles after fleeing justice. They're both being manipulated by Varus and Illyrio. That one actually comes up. They actually talk about that, though Varus, though Jorah denies that he's being manipulated by them. Yeah, right. <laughs> they both mistake lust for love, probably on multiple occasions, well, definitely on multiple occasions. They each had a woman they loved who probably never loved them turn on them because of someone more powerful and wealthy. Jorah's wife left him for a wealthy, powerful man who could threaten him with slavery or death, and Shay turned up with Tywin after Tyrion's trial and helping condemn Tyrion to a similar fate. Yet in his mind, even though there was all these similarities that Jorah's probably blind to a lot of these similarities, Jorah still thinks he can look down on Tyrion. In Westeros, Slaving is illegal, and that's accursed, but kinslaying is far worse, culturally speaking, right? You don't hear people walking around talking about how evil slavers are in Westeros, because it, it, it just doesn't come up. But kinslaying, it's like, oh, oh. To bring that point up, Jorah says so right away. He wants to point out the difference between them. He's eager to explain why he's so much better. I'm... I've done things I'm not proud of, things that brought shame onto my house and my father's name. But to kill your own sire, how could any man do that? I mean, some of this is projecting because we know Gior's very disappointed in Jorah, but we know Jorah's story pretty well, so we can, better than Tyrion by far, so we can sit here going, my goodness, this is hypocritical. Wow, man. I mean, are you really saying that murdering your own father is worse than slavery? I mean, you could make that point, but really, this is a low bar to clear. But these are both pretty bad things. And since we know the circumstances, frankly, I I think Tyrion has the higher ground here, even (laughs) he didn't enslave anyone. And of course, he could literally look down on Tyrion too. That is something that Tyrion's been facing his whole life. People mock him for his stature. He's better with weapons than you would think, but he's no warrior. And Jorah is actually good at fighting, maybe even excellent. And he's very big. So that's the, these are the kind of things that Jorah can fixate on, the differences, rather than this enormous amount they have in common. 
they could have bonded over things. There's a lot they, again, this is like, I, I can picture it almost being like a buddy cop thing, a little more like what happened on TV, although they weren't exactly friendly there either. But like they both had unrequited love. Mm, Tyrion got that rude winter, welcome at Winterfell from Rob. Remember, they were really, they were kind of crappy to him even after he helped Bran. And then he gets imprisoned by Cat. So he's got reasons to dislike the Stark. They could bond over that. Jorah hates Ned. So they're like, yeah, those stupid Starks, blah, blah, blah. You know, <laughs> they could have a drink over that. And they and Tyrion's even met Gior, but smart on Tyrion's part not to bring that up. You know, you don't want to rub that salt in that wound. I don't think he wants to talk about that. A chapter ago, Tyrion's head got rubbed for luck. He was startled. It was so demeaning. And again, given who he was back in Westeros, people just wouldn't do that to him. They might insult him, but this is, this is going a step farther, actually rubbing his head. It happens again here at the beginning of this chapter. Well, he's a little more used to it this time. It reminds me of an anecdote. We often very briefly touch on certain comedy shows, and this is a good time to do that again. There's an episode of the show 30 Rock where the main character, Liz Lemon, sees what she thinks is a child from a distance and it turns out to be Peter Dinklage. And he works for like the UN. He's a real big, powerful guy. And she just can't help but treat him as a child. Multiple, she walks up behind him and touches him on the head, thinks he's a child. And she's like, he's like, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> it's really awkward. I just think that's neat that it's actually Peter Dinklage in that role. And we have this head-touching moment. So beyond Jorah's contempt for Tyrion as a way to boost himself back up, he sees Tyrion as his chance to get back in Danny's good graces, which is, of course, the only thing he cares about. And though he is so very obsessed with Daenerys, there's a lot of aspects of her personality that he fails to grasp, right? He sees a lot in Danny that he wants to see and doesn't see some of the things he doesn't want to see, kind of like he does with himself. Tyrion is going to accidentally remind him of that. <laughs> that concept of not thinking things through or seeing what he wants to see when he wonders aloud if Danny will actually reward Jorah and kill Tyrion or the other way around. Whether, he'll, whether Danny will be like, actually, Tyrion, you can be let out of chains and be my advisor. Where Jorah, I told you never to come back. What the hell are you doing here? So that's a reasonable possibility, right? Um, that Jorah is really banking on it not going that way. And so this makes Jorah, in the back of his mind, his feelings for Tyrion are a little mixed. On some level, he, he knows that he shouldn't be too certain how Danny's going to react to this gift of Tyrion Lannister. So he's got a, Tyrion's got a point. <laughs> Consider that Tyrion may end up very high in Danny's command structure. In fact, it seems likely. So even if Jorah is allowed back into her good graces, he's going to be outranked by Tyrion quite possibly. So it's another awkward thing that Jorah is setting up for himself here quite possibly. And so with all this talk of heads being cut off, whose head is going to be? Tyrion's, Jorah's, neither. That brings us to Groat, Penny's brother. We're going to not talk about Penny a whole lot this chapter because it's so big and he, she's going to be around a while. So we're going to have plenty of time to talk about her, especially in chapters that have less world building, whereas this one has so much going on. But this is worth pointing out that we saw her and her brother in Quentin's chapter. This is that same general area. And in fact, the widow of the waterfront recognizes her, recognizes her as one of the performing dwarfs. So clearly they've been around here and the area is Fishmonger Square. It's on the west side 
really huge, lots of ships and port businesses and things like that. With that, let's talk about the widow of the waterfront. Another great character, very much a mafia boss type. Nameless on purpose. We don't have her real name. And that's, again, I'm, that's intentional. This isn't George not giving us her name like the Princess of Dorne. This is intentionally leaving it out because it's part of her character. She sets up shop in someone else's restaurant. That is so mafia. <laughs> she cares a lot about being respected. Hello. And she takes payment in gifts. Same thing, right? Very mafia boss-like. And I like it a lot. <laughs> She's a good character. I don't know if we'll ever see her again. I think maybe we'll hear about her, but I'm guessing that she's maybe a one and done, but maybe not. Maybe when Danny comes to Volantis, we'll see her again. Either way, she's, she leaves a large impact. Nina notes a nice inversive parallel here. The widow of the waterfront is sort of the opposite of Sarah, Illyrio's Sarah, whereas Illyrio and Sarah were a couple where you have the powerful man, wealthy man, connected marries someone really lowborn. And in the same case, a sex worker. Marries a sex worker. That causes a scandal, causes this dude to be excluded from some of the power circles he was in before. And now in the case of Illyrio, Sarah dies and he continues on with her legacy in, in his way. Now this is in reverse. The widow of the waterfront's husband, Vergaro, died and she took over his businesses and and She's what would have happened if Illyrio died and Sarah took over Illyrio's businesses. Kind of similar. I mean, not that necessarily Sarah would have turned out to be some sort of crime boss, but the point is the same. And she's right about almost everything she, she says. Not everything, but almost everything. So she's kind of like this, get this oracle feel to her as well. A little bit of just a vague pinch, a pinch of old Nan thrown in maybe. And she's not directly supernatural, but she mentions... Bonero's prophecies, Bonero reading the flames, things like that. She's got a connection to supernatural vehicles. She's just not, it's not a direct thing coming from her. And here's a great quote. This is how the chapter ends. You want to be gone from here before the tigers come. Should you reach your queen, give her a message from the slaves of old Volantis. She touched the faded scar upon her wrinkled cheek where her tears had been cut away. Tell her we are waiting. Tell her to come soon. Mm. So by now, you don't need more evidence probably that the doom of Volantis is nigh, but this is more of it. I mean, she, this, what we have is a character that's introduced as extremely insightful, powerful, knowledgeable, and she's say, this is what she's saying. Uh, and she says, at another point, she says, oh, it's going to be war, but not the war the Triarchs want. You know, there's four out of five people in this city are slaves. That's what's coming. And that's why the widow of the waterfront wants to help Daenerys and doesn't want to send people who are her enemies to her because she wants Danny to come free the slaves. That's quite clear from this conversation. Not only is it her overwhelming ethical preference, right? She wants to end slavery because she was one and sees the evils within. But she's but as a mafia boss, she's positioned really well to profit from the fall of all these powerful people. What did we learn from Peter Baelish? It was made more, it's more subtly done in the, in the books, but, and kind of bluntly done in the TV show, the line, chaos is a ladder. That line isn't in the books, but it is a pretty good line. It's true. It's a, it's a good, succinct way of making this point. This would be very chaotic. Volantis's power structures collapsing would be extremely chaotic, and she would be 
among the most well-positioned, as far as we know, to profit from that. So in, in chaos, there's more crime. And crime bosses, of course, that's, that's right up their alley. So that's why she's wary at first of sending Jorah and Tyrion to Danny because she doesn't think that they're going to help with this goal. She's like, well, I want people, if Danny's, I want to send allies to her, people that are going to help facilitate this end of slavery, support her in any way possible and keep the bad elements away from her. And when she looks at Jorah, she's like, this dude? Yeah, I don't know about that. She doesn't obviously know that Danny already sent her away or sent him away. But she has a sense of some of the reasons why, even without that direct knowledge. She can tell by, you know, the expression on his face and, and how he, his body language. It's frustrating for him. It must be. And you can tell because Tyrion says some cutting things to Jorah before that gets him upset. At one point, we hear that she, Jorah had punched him. It was off page, but it got him so mad that he did that. But the Widow of the Waterfront repeats a lot of the same things Tyrion said about Jorah, like the same personality read. Like, I can tell you're this kind of person. I can tell this and that. And she's right. And so it really bo probably bothers Jorah a lot that he was denying those things to Tyrion. You have someone more wise and knowledgeable that's saying the same things. And, and Jorah can't gainsay her because he wants things from her and because she has the power to end his life in a flash. So he has to sit there and take it but his face betrays him and she calls him out for that too. <laughs> She's like, I see that dark look. Don't look at me like that. I know what's going on behind going on in your mind. Like, don't, you can't fool me. She says, men are beasts, selfish and brutal. However gentle the words, there are always darker motives underneath. So when he's like, yeah, I'm a knight. I want to go help her, serve her in any way I can. It just sounds like BS. <laughs> it's like given her worldview a guy just showing up to help does not make any sense to her. So he's done nothing to alleviate the concern that he's out for himself. She's wary of that, and he hasn't done anything to, to suggest otherwise. She doesn't trust him, and nothing he said changed that. So then she says something that reminds us that Sandor Clegane isn't the, uh, the first or nearly the only one to notice how rarely knights actually act like knights. The widow of the waterfront gave Mormont a cool look. Knights defend the weak and protect the innocent, they say. And I am the fairest maid in all Volantis. Her laugh was full of scorn. Yeah. And however, the mitigating factor, though, there is a mitigating factor, and that comes nicely as a surprise Penny trying to kill Tyrion. Yet he still shows kindness to her. Someone who is trying to kill him. Yeah, he shows kindness to her. That is a rare thing in a place like Volantis or just in general, right? I wouldn't say the widow of the waterfront was moved by that, but it changed her mind. It definitely taught her something. It also taught her that Jorah was more honest than he was saying. For example, what I said at the beginning of this episode is that it's widely known, widow of the waterfront knows herself, that the Golden Company is heading west and there's a bunch of exiles getting lands back. But Jorah's not with them. Jorah, if Jorah wanted to get Bear Island back, that's where he would be. He could go take Tyrion's head to Cersei and get his reward, get his lordship. That's what her cynical worldview tells her most people would do. And she'd be right. Most people would do that. But the fact that Jorah isn't doing that, he's not taking the easy way back to his lands. That is very telling. 
she, she really is devoted to Danny. Of course, it's obsession. It's not, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of unhealthy. But he's proven through that that he's not a direct danger to her. His advice might be bad, but he's not going to try to kill her, right? And that is enough. She, the widow of the waterfront knows Daenerys can make use of a guy like that. He, of course, she's not aware of their existing history, but still. So, He's passing on the Golden Company. He's passing on Cersei's reward. Very telling. Let's move on, though, to Bonero and the Red Temple. That's the, one of the other really major features in this chapter. Here's another awesome, awesome quote. Seven save me. That's got to be three times the size of the great sept of Baelor. An enormity of pillars, steps, buttresses, bridges, domes, and towers flowing into one another as if they had all been chiseled from one colossal rock. The temple of the Lord of Light loomed like Aegon's high hill. A hundred hues of red, yellow, gold, and orange met and melded in the temple walls, dissolving one into the other like clouds at sunset. Its slender towers twisted ever upward, frozen flames dancing as they reached for the sky. Fire turned to stone. I love when the reader and the character are about equally astonished by what they're seeing. It really adds to the, the impact. And Benero's speech is in full swing. The speech itself and him, I mean, it's overwhelming. He has the crowd eating out of his hand, but then he adds he had some magic, his Valyrian glyphs, like popping in like fireworks or whatever. Kind of get that sense that Melisandre learned that from these folks or those that came before. And it's another buildup from long ago, right? We saw the fire mages at Karth just starting to get their powers back because, according to them, because the dragons were reborn. So you wonder if, could Benero do all these things, you know, a couple of years back before the dragons were born? Is that, does that corroborate over here? Probably, but maybe not. You wonder, what was he able to do? Was he, I mean, he's more powerful than some street fire mage, right? So what, what were his capabilities then versus now? Um, I wonder if we'll ever get answers along those lines. What would he? What happen if he was near a dragon? I wonder if you know Relorists, their powers are increased with the presence of dragons, like close up, rather than just being in the world. It sort of stands to reason as a possibility, certainly not an automatic thing. But I'm curious. Now here's Benero himself. Let's take a look at him. Tall and thin, he had a drawn face and skin white as milk. Flames had been tattooed across his cheeks and chin and shaven head to make a bright red mask that crackled about his eyes and coiled down and around his lipless mouth. Whew. That is both amazing and kind of difficult to picture because it's like the detail level and like what exactly does those, those tattoos look like? And wow. <laughs> and notice his skin is white as milk, kind of like Melisandre's. That you wonder if she have facial tattoos that are hidden? Or is that is this more of a Volantis thing? Because obviously facial tattoos are big in Volantis and Melisandre's not from Volantis. So that might be why. Melisandre like a rapper with face tattoos. <laughs> 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 Picture Melisandre with a few gold teeth. We'll give her a Dario gold tooth. Yeah. <laughs> Melly D. And he's standing, giving the speech, he's standing on some big red stone pillar with lower level acolytes and other priests, whatever, also robed and standing below him. It's just so awesome. 
and Tyrion is more than stunned. Multiple realizations hit him all kind of close together. One, he's like, holy crap, this church is so huge. The sermon is like, wait, what's he talking about? This is, this is scary stuff that's being talked about. But the thing that scares him the most is the way the crowd is reacting. This is a man who has been through a riot personally, and he's seeing the signs again of the same sort of general attitude, this general simmering unhappiness, the way they're reacting to Bonero's punctuating remarks. You know, they're like, Tyrion hears them cheering, yelling every once in a while when he finishes a phrase. And, and he's explicitly preaching overthrow of the government. It's not subtle here. And this goes further in Tyrion's mind. He's like, wait a minute. This is not good for... Well, let's take a look at the quote. The hairs on the back of Tyrion's neck began to prickle. Prince Aegon will find no friend here. The Red Priest spoke of ancient prophecy, a prophecy that foretold the coming of a hero to deliver the world from darkness. One hero, not two. Daenerys has dragons. Aegon does not. The dwarf did not need to be a prophet himself to foresee how Benero and his followers might react to a second Targaryen. Griff will see that too, surely, he thought, surprised to find how much he cared. Will Griff see that? I guess maybe, but in his two chapters, it doesn't really come up. He is certainly a little worried about, you know, young Griff's identity being exposed, but I'm not sure he's actually thought through just how big a deal all this Red Priest stuff is. Although perhaps he just doesn't think R'hllor is going to be a problem for him because he knows they're going to Westeros and he thinks they're, that's all going to, they're going to leave all that behind him, which is probably not true. They're probably going to come, come also. And here is something we referred to before. We, talk, we brought it up with the Widow of the Waterfront, but it has more to do with Benero in this war. And here's another maybe direct reference to knowing what's coming because it's not a suggestion, but, the, but evidence of perhaps proof through magic. Oh, I think it will be war as well, but not the war they want. The old woman leaned forward, her black eyes gleaming. I think that Red R'hllor has more worshippers in this city than all the other gods together. Have you heard Benero preach? Last night. Benero can see the morrow in his flames. What that seems to mean is that he's proven that he can be accurate with it. Like Melisandre's got a mixed record, of course. She's been right sometimes, wrong other times. Makoro, who we'll meet soon, going to be right every single time we've seen to date. Maybe we'll see him be wrong eventually. But if you're a person that sees repeated predictions from a red priest that come true, you're going to start to assume that almost everything they say is right because they've got credibility. Well, the Wit of the Waterfront says about the Celesori Corin, the ship she tells Tyrion and Jorah to get on. She'll never reach Karth. Benero has seen it in his fires. And that's why Makoro is on that ship. It's hard to get people to Danny, but they, through supernatural means, knew that this would work. <laughs> and Makoro's route to Danny, as we're going to see, is going to be extremely circuitous. <laughs> Into the sea, sit there for a while, be picked up by Victarion, and Victarion takes him to Marine, you know, with some new robes and a new job and all that. The point is, she believes this is happening in part because Benero has seen it in his fire. She, she can predict it from a, well, look how 
the altitude of the city, look how politics were going, but also there seems to be the supernatural evidence as well. It's neat that Tyrion is still having sympathy for Aegon. Like, he hopes John Connington is going to have this realization. He's surprised that he cares. It's interesting because it's another example that Tyrion isn't actually ready to give up on life. We've seen some of that. Like, he's like, oh, I'll just die. My life's a joke, all this and that. But there's points where he's tested. When these moments of being tested come up, he kind of proves to himself that he does want to live even if it's just to get revenge on, on his family. That's still a purpose, even if it's kind of a dark purpose or it's a very dark purpose or not the most ethical purpose. It's, it is a purpose. And he oddly seems to care about some of these people who aren't part of that purpose. So I think maybe it's a sign that there's a little more goodness in Tyrion than maybe some of these other factors indicate. And that is something that's very different from Jorah. Because he's actually learning some empathy here, Tyrion is. At one point, he actually thinks, how must have Tysha felt? How must Shay have felt? How, much, how, did his, how did his father feel when he was being shot by the crossbow bolt? Uh, there's some people he left out of that. But still, it's a good sign. Internally, without, you know, he's being sort of pushed to, in this direction because he's in chains and he's forced to have this empathy, but he does have it. Unlike Jorah, who continues to blame other people, and doesn't have that empathy. So as much as they have in common here, it shows that this is something that they're very separate on. He's having his life flipped around and he's experiencing things from the opposite perspective of an extremely high-born person. One thing Jorah does wisely is understand that Tyrion is really good at talking. And that's why he puts him in chains. Because in Volantis, you don't talk to people in chains. You ignore them entirely. It's a cultural thing because of the laws, because of just hundreds of years of operating this way, people are just taught that. And so that's one thing that we, we, we got to recognize, even though Jorah is kind of overly obsessed, he's dark, he's lacking in empathy, he's not an idiot. We also get a little wordplay when uh, Tyrion's eating locusts, which is <laughs> maybe a little bit of a nod to the locust poisoning later. And also perhaps... The, the bugs amongst the brazen beasts, or rather the sons of the harpy, which it might come down to Tyrion being the one to solve that problem. He would be good at that sort of thing, uh, rooting out secret organizations. And, but the, the wordplay comes with when he says, you never knew might walk, might, who the wind might blow in. My one true love, my father's ghost, a duck. Two pieces of wordplay there, at least. One is the duck. He's thinking of duck as in Sir Duck because he's hoping that they walk in and, and see him and rescue him. Of course, thanks to his own shenanigans, they're not likely to come in the door because they've headed west. <laughs> and of course, he says, who might the wind blow in, which is a you know, reference to the windblown who were here recently. Really big chapter. A couple takes from you guys. We got San Rixian sends a super chat. Hey, San Rixian. Great to see you. And shout out to San Rixian's uh, store, especially with Christmas around the corner. Great time to check out what she's got to offer. Lots of amazing art. And she sends the message, Ashea as meek slash mel slash Melly D slash post mel and when. <laughs> Ashea is going to be rapper Melisandre. Yeah, everyone was uh, chiming in with their ideas for rapper Melisandre names. And I have to say, John Hagee had my favorite. Oh, Melisandre 3000. That is good. Melisandre it's, it's really 3000. Good. 
I, I mean, love it. that and is I, really good. And I said that I'll do it if someone cosplays as Lil Finger. <laughs> Lil Finger. Uh, Michael Shelton says the original London Bridge had shops and houses along it as well. Okay, cool. That's really neat. It's that's just glorious and epic to think about. This gigantic bridge, so large that it's just filled with shops as well. That's just really. That's part of why I think George. It's going to be tempting for him to destroy it. <laughs> Bryce Chung says Buddha and Pest in Hungary, Minneapolis and St. Paul in Minnesota. Lots of real life examples of split cities. Yeah, those are, thank you for those examples because that's exactly what I'm talking about. Buddha and Pest were separate, but now they're one. Minneapolis and St. Paul were separate, but now they're one. They're, it's called Minneapolis-St. Paul. So yes, perfect examples. Volantis was, I don't know what the Western side was called. If it had a name, I forget it, but eventually it's all Volantis. I want to mention the multiple... You no, know, wait, it's easy. Sorry. It should have been St. Minneapolis. <laughs> they really could have combined that, yeah. Minneapolis, yeah. <laughs> Wasted opportunity. Budapest had it right. Yeah, just combine them. <laughs> so there's multiple mentions of monkeys in this chapter, like different connotations. And that's curious to me. What of the Waterfront compares Tyrion to a monkey, in fact. And that's where it gets interesting because in the world of Ice and Fire... One of the many legends of ending the long night is of a, is a, a tiger woman with a monkey's tail. And, well, monkey's tail, the monkey's tail hats are worn by people in the Far East in honor of that arrangement that helped save the world. And I wonder if that is referring to Tyrion being Daenerys' advisor in the future. Because um, Daenerys would be the one they would be referring to with the Tiger Woman saving the world, but we'll see about that. It's a ref- the, the Tiger Woman bit is a reference to Amethyst Empress and all that stuff. So more on that. We've covered elsewhere, Great Empire of the Dawn, and etc. Um, oh, cool! Amy Blackfire with a message says, "My first video slash essay is about Tyrion monkey imagery. If you want to know more, and she says, notice that it's only men that wear the hat." Oh, yeah, only men that wear... Oh, yeah, only men wear those hats in the East. Great detail, important clarification there. So, yeah, check out Amy Blackfire's channel. It's fairly new channel, and she's been writing a lot. She's, she's got particular knowledge of Eastern cultures, real-world Eastern cultures, and, and she's able to make some connections there. So definitely check her out. I highly recommend it. From Stefan B., Tyrion also thought he was being taken to Winterfell when Cat took him. So yeah, I forgot about that. There's another parallel here. Tyrion thought he was being taken to Winterfell and then he realizes, oh, we're on the high road. We're going to the Vale. Same, very similar here as he thinks he's being taken to Cersei, but he's being taken to Daenerys. Also, Stefan B. points out that Jorah is also going back to a Game of Thrones in a way because his early role was to explain Essos to Danny. That was kind of his, he was like the conduit, a Westerosi who could explain things from uh, a Westerosi's point of view to an exile. And now he's doing that again. It's one of the few things that he's not like mean to Tyrion about. He, he gets a little drunk and gets some food in him. And he's like, I'll tell you what I know about Volantis. What's the harm, you know? And it's great for us readers. John 6. A vision of Arya is a vision of Alice, a.k.a. a duel with Rattleshirt is a duel with Nance. It's the one where Melisandre is at her most powerfully seductive this chapter is, a, is as much about her as it is John, almost. In part, it's a setup for her chapter, which is, for us, in Valor Arita's terms, next week. This is one of the shorter chapters in the book. 
Only five chapters in this book are shorter, which is an interesting thing to have right after the longest chapter and the second longest chapter right before that with Asha's. But one of the other short chapters of the other five short ones was John's last chapter. So two of two short John chapters in a row. But that's kind of an appetizer, right? It's less filling, more appetizer because John is going to become the dominant POV in terms of screen time in the second half of the book. So this is maybe groundwork for that. And just like real life, sometimes the appetizers are the best part. Maybe you like the later John chapters better, but this one is good. The end of this chapter is incredible. Melisandre showing off her power and it's in several different ways. It's, she has yet to realize who John really is and who Stannis is not. <laughs> but this is a bit of history repeating itself. Melisandre wanted Stannis to make use of her power and she wants the same for John to make use of power, not just hers, but his, all the power, all of, yeah, just all of it. But even though I say this is really a, a chapter that has so much to do with Melisandre, her powers are on display, she's front and center, it's still John's chapter after all. Because as with nearly every chapter of John's Ark and Anansas Dragons, the stakes are raised vis-a-vis -vis temptation and difficult ruling decisions. The balance of being a good Lord Commander following the dictates of the Watch, whereas battling himself for very understandable feelings about his family and for what's going on in the North with the Boltons and all that stuff. So the temptations are tougher. They're more understandable from a human perspective, but they're pushing him more into clearly breaking his oaths. So the more he wants to fight for his family, the more he can't fight for the Watch. So his duties are threatening to overwhelm him. And in this chapter, he also has all these thoughts of his family and his home. And those thoughts are essentially forbidden. He's kind of like even his own thoughts are betraying him. But he's only human, right? Despite this chapter being short, it, like I said, it packs a punch because he manages to think about nearly his entire family. Even Catelyn's name comes up. And so does another figure very prominent in John's early development who has since faded, but is still around right here. When he heard the order, Sir Alistair's mouth twisted into a semblance of a smile, but his eyes remained as cold and hard as flint. He thinks it's a death sentence. And from his perspective, you can see why he thinks that. But as readers, we know better. We can see in John's head, and there's no overt ill will, and the Rangers aren't calling it a death sentence. Dywin's laughing about it. Risky, yeah, but this is war. This is, I mean, they're all taking risks fairly often. That's just the name of it. According to Melisandre, it could be interpreted that Sir Alistair is going to survive this ranging. She predicts through her gazing into the flames that three of them are doomed. And we see that come to pass in Melisandre's chapter. That implies the other six will survive, maybe? And it wasn't Alistair in the group of three that were killed. And it was apparently the weeper that did that. Empty sockets weeping blood, she said, referring to their eyes. And that's good. Not the three that got killed, of course, but... It's good that Alistair wasn't killed because he's with Daiwen, and I like Daiwen. I don't want Daiwen to die. It's like, Daiwen? When's he going to die? <laughs> die, <laughs> lose. <Yeah. laughs> he's apparently the best forester the watch has, and that's part of why I like him. But it's also because he has this sense of when the cold, he smells the cold, it feels wrong to him, and he seems to have a, a good sense of that. He seems to be accurate with those reads from what little we see. It's, we saw it back in A Storm of Swords. He supported John. He voted for him. He's been on John's side. He was one of the good guys at, during Craster's uh, 
all that shenanigans when half the guys were uh, rebelling against Vior. Dywin stayed loyal. So there's no way John is going to... Like, we might, we might maybe think subconsciously he wants Alistair to die. I don't think so. But he's definitely not trying to get Dywin killed, right? If he's trying to get Alistair killed, he's trying to get them both killed. That just doesn't make sense. In fact, taking it further, John laments how hard it is to do this, to make this decision, the call of sending men out to risk their lives. Personally, he'd rather do it himself. He'd learned that probably from Eddard, from his father, father figure. I, I point to the similarity in leadership challenges here faced by John as compared to those faced by Danny. One of the differences is Danny can't exactly go face those dangers herself. She's not equipped for that. But she still doesn't like the idea. She feels responsible even down to the lower level people under her command. Here's another subtle but important connection between them. Quote, from high on, their garrons looked no larger than ants, and John could not tell one ranger from another. The next time ants are mentioned at all is in Danny's final chapter in several places. One, memories walked with her, clouds seen from above, horses small as ants thundering through the grass. And two, it turned out that their anthill was on the other side of her wall. She wondered how the ants had managed to climb over it and find her. To them, these tumble-down stones must loom as huge as the wall of Westeros. So, ants are only mentioned in about 12 chapters. The first ever mention of ants in all the books is John in reverse. Instead of Lord Commander atop the wall looking down, he first sees the wall as a new recruit looking up in a Game of Thrones John 3, and it says, the gaunt outlines of huge catapults and monstrous wooden cranes stood sentry up there like the skeletons of great birds, and among them walked men in black as small as ants. Sansa is another example to point to, Elaine one. Around the walls, the hosts of, Lo of Lord's Declarant were stirring, emerging from their tents like ants from an anthill. If only they were truly ants, she thought, we could step on them and crush them. <laughs> so one of the important pieces of symbology here is that ants are not individuals. When you're so far above them, which is being portrayed as physical distance here, but the symbolism is that they're so far apart in terms of power, and some of them are just little individual soldiers with very little agency, whereas from atop the wall, the Lord Commander, or from atop the Great Pyramid, or from atop the, the Eyrie, these aren't individuals anymore. You can't tell them apart. Um, you're so powerful. You're so far above them that they aren't unique to you anymore. And, that, and this is really fitting for ants because ants, their society is built that way. They're like, you are a drone, you do drone jobs. You are a worker, you work. And then they have queens at the top of all that. Ants don't have kings, they have queens. So that's maybe a, an unintentional or maybe intentional clue on George's part that it's going to be Danny and not John who is bows before. You know, Danny's going to be the one that, that wins out in terms of royal power. That's setting aside what happens at the end end, but I do believe John will submit to her, not the other way around. So that is a really interesting set of collected pieces of symbolism on ants. Like I said, it doesn't come up very often, so I think it is George was saving it for these key moments. Whether John has subconscious emotion wrapped in his decision to send out Alistair is tough to say even with insight into his thought, because we have to factor in the rational and reasonable disagreement on the issue of sealing the gates, right? Not ranging means not knowing what's going on nearby, and John doesn't want to be blind. The Weeper 
who removes eyes from those he captures and kills is of the opposite opinion. Hmm. And while John isn't trying to get Alice or killed, that doesn't mean he's not a little vindictive. It's odd to send a ranger out when they're not a ranger. On a ranging, when things are particularly dangerous for rangers right now. There's definitely fair to question that a little bit. So like I said, I don't think he's trying to get him killed, but I think maybe he is trying to punish him a little bit. And John doesn't sell it very well either. He could have said something like, well, Alistair, you're a great fighter. There's foes all around. These are some of our best rangers. They need to be kept safe. He could have said it that way. It might not have been strictly true, but it would have been a good way to say it. It would have not insulted Alistair, which is what he does do. He says, instead he shames him saying like, well, they'll keep you safe. (laughs) So it's like he's being... He's being told he's a burden. He's being told, look, you're not capable of this, but they'll help you. Yeah, John, again, his communication skills should, could have been a little better there. This is a long-running theme of, of him having the right ideas, but maybe not selling them to his, his leadership very well. And this is the same issue that we discussed in Volantis just now, with, that we discussed with Aegon V and these other characters that Leaders can't just do whatever they want. You may have, he may have been elected to lead, but as we see, he's meeting resistance left and right from what's the equivalent of the nobility here. There's no nobility on the, on the Night's Watch, but the equivalent is the high officers, the, the, the next most powerful group of people. And they're pretty much all against John's decisions here. And that's why he's having trouble advancing these progressive ideas because he doesn't have buy-in from his constituents. His low-level constituents have bought in, right? The rank and file, the ones who supported him, a lot of them are like, yes, we follow John, what John wants, yes. But like, yeah, obviously, Bowen Marsh, Alice Thorne, all these other guys are completely on the opposite side of things. If they were with him, John's things would be being implemented like left and right all the time, but they're against him. So it's not happening. Same with Danny, meeting lots of resistance. People are against her decisions. She does not have buy-in of the nobility in Marines. So Alistair says he's coming back one way or the other, alive or dead. Joe Buckley suggests this is a clever way for George to remind us dead can have memories. They don't remember everything, but they might remember the person they hate the most or love the most. That brings us back again to Catelyn, a different form of Rey's dead, but she very much recalls her hate. She's very much engaged in revenge and doing the thing that she died in the midst of kind of continuing on with that. Turning to someone who is definitely more of the former, meaning someone we hate rather than love, Ramsay sends a letter. It's this almost the same one Asha got two chapters back. I think I said it was the same. That was a little bit of an exaggeration. It's, it's slightly different. Important, of course, is that Ramsay is claiming to be Lord of Winterfell. That's immediately not going to make John happy. But of course, that is of lesser importance as other things in the letter, mostly about Arya. And as part of the coming pink letter mystery, John takes note of the color of the wax. And so did Asha. And the wording of how they examine the letter is similar in other ways. I think that's mostly because it's a near identical letter on the outside. It's tightly rolled, has this hard button of wax. But the fact that John and Asha both ponder the color, they both take a look at it, I think that's a sign George R. Martin wants to take note as well. It's a great way to add tension to a letter, to realize it's from the Dreadfort, so that when we get a letter later, it's well set up. It's like, oh, we already know that's from the Dreadfort before even opening it. That's, that creates suspense. So 
it doesn't have to be anything more than that. There are definitely reasons to be suspicious of the pink letter, but it could just be as far as our attention being drawn to the color of the wax, it could just be to be able to set up suspense later by showing us that color and being like, oh, what's going to be in this letter? But if it turns out that the pink letter wasn't sent by Ramsey, then this is going to be set up for that misdirection. So we should be considering that. One of the differences in the letters is Asha's letter contained a piece of skin. John's didn't. The second is that Asha is told to get out or face the same fate of those who were at Mokalen, the other 63 Ironborn soldiers there. Otherwise, it seems to contain all the same information. The fall of the moat, the same signatures, and the mention of the marriage to Ramsey and Arya. An important but possibly confusing detail here is that the wedding is called for in Barrowton. But next week, Roos is going to change his mind. We're going to see in Theon's chapter that he wants the wedding to take place in Winterfell instead, and that's how we end up in Winterfell instead later in the book. So, a lot of confusing things here. When this book was new, piecing together what was going on in the North, was there was a few challenges here. Because you got two different fake Arias, you got the wedding being moved, you got different people knowing different things about the different fake Arias, so it's a lot to keep track of, right? Like, one person thinks the fake Arya is this. One person thinks it's this. One is the Yeah, there's just, there's so many permutations and so many different versions of events that different characters believe. Of course, the two quote-unquote fake Arya's are Jane Poole and Alice Karstark. They have real names. <laughs> one is an intentional fake and one is Melisandre's mistake. So a question I have is, an open question is, when Mance leaves Castle Black to go rescue Arya, He's going after the, the girl in gray on a dying horse, which is Alice. But he ends up at Winterfell because he hears that's where Arya is. But that's the other fake Arya. <laughs> so, yeah, it's hard to keep track of, right? So that makes it a much more dangerous mission because at first he's just going to go find some girl who's by herself, you know, out in the wilderness, maybe running away from some dudes, but... She's not like inside a castle with Boltons around her. So this is a much harder mission all of a sudden. And I wondered, and I want to know that the question is, was Mance just following through on his mission? He's like, okay, well, the job is to rescue Arya, even though this job just got a lot harder. We got to go do that. Really? Did Man why? Why would Mance put himself at risk? I'm not saying it's unbelievable. I just want to know what Mance's motivation is. Why would Mance go through with this? Why would he continue on this mission that just got way more dangerous? The answer might be that he doesn't actually have free will. The answer might be that the ruby that Melisandre is using to control him is sort of compelling him to complete his mission no matter what, even though Melisandre doesn't even know what that entails now. Or if it's not supernatural, my best guess is he really wants John who he thinks is an honorable guy, and he's right, to owe him a favor. Like, look, I'm doing this for you. I saved your sister. Do me a favor. Maybe it's he wants to save his own child. His own child is not unlikely to be a pretty significant motivation, which is why some people think that Mance wrote the pink letter because the letter would help potentially him save his child. But maybe not. That's not necessarily clear either which is why this whole thing is, is a little difficult to understand. So it is indeed a twist that Melisandre unwittingly helps Roos and Littlefinger's Arya slash Jane Poole swap. 
by seeing Alice Karstark in her vision and thinking it's Arya. And it sort of makes sense. You can see that Melisandre is aware of details that aren't just a matter of seeing. Because she's aware that Alice is fleeing a forced marriage to someone who wants her castle, which is the same thing that they're doing with Arya. They're forcing Arya to marry Ramsay so that he can claim her castle. Clearly, this is part of why Melisandre makes this mistake is because she's aware of those details. Her vision tells her that somehow. So that is how this leads to the pink letter because Mance doesn't find Alice Karstark. He goes to Winterfell and by getting either caught or semi-caught, at least they certainly figured out that Jane Poole got away, leading us directly to the pink letter. So that's how all this ties together really interestingly because obviously in the pink letter, Ramsay demands his bride back and, and other things like Theon. <laughs> Though he is supposed to think of Arya as no longer his sister, his reaction to the letter is so intense that he completely stops feeling the absolute thrashing he just got from Rattlemance. He got, you know, he got beaten badly, right? But he's so overwhelmed by this news that he, he just stops feeling the pain that he's in because the emotional pain just overwhelms the physical pain. Which brings us to the training, which of course happened earlier in the chapter, but we do things in our own order here in Valar Reredus. Training is, of course, as we've said several times, not an uncommon occurrence in John's chapters. It's, it's kind of building up to what's likely to be a lot of actual fights against opponents who are actually trying to kill him. This one certainly has a claim to be most interesting of them all in terms of his training fights, though. Training against three at once, a lot of you notice that that's reminiscent of Garland Tyrell. We hear that he does the same thing. And it makes sense because, yeah, in a battle, you don't, it's not one-on-one -on -one fights. It's chaos. You might indeed have three people coming at you all at once, and well, that's dangerous, but you may as well be prepared for it. You got a chance. I'm not sure John's going to be qu quite as legendary as he is on HBO. I mean, the dude is like unbeatable almost with a sword, and that's not a complaint. I'm just guessing he won't quite be so unbeatable in the books, but he's being set up to be very good at it and to do a lot of it. I mean, John barely touches a sword in this book, as Joe points out, but he gets to be a hero more than ever because of taking on leadership. Rather than taking on the risk of being killed directly in combat, he's taking on these tough, difficult decisions and, and leadership roles, which are maybe less likely to get you killed in general, but they do in John's case. And you can see why John is, is yearning for simpler things. And that's why training to him... Is a bit of an escape from all his responsibilities. But even that is painful to him because while fighting, he, he has these thoughts of, of Rob and these other things. So even this is, is less of a refuge than it, than it once was because there's reminders of his lost family mixed in. But adding more fighters to their squad is important. It's not just something he does to escape. He knows he's going to have to fight one day and he knows he has to help these recruits learn to be warriors. And well, we, and there's another thing that we have in common with Danny's arc is we have Sir Barristan doing a minor version of this training Westerosi, training people to fight like Westerosi knights because, well, they'll be needed. Speaking of these recruits, of course, the other Night's Watch commanders are predictably unhappy with free folk recruits. Neither Cotter Pike nor Dennis Malister are happy with it. Cotter Pike flat out says he doesn't trust them. But they're not seeing the situation for what it is. This is the best John can do. I don't think a different Lord Commander would be able to come up with more men. They just aren't there. There's no men to be had. These, the, they could be backing them up. They could be saying, look, I understand. There's no more men you can send me. There's no one else available. But no, they're just complaining. 
Yeah, that's just John's burdens are enormous here. No one's helping him. No one's backing him except for a few of his friends. And there's fewer and fewer of those around because he keeps sending them away. If you're like me, and let's face it, you are. <laughs> you're hyper-focused for signs of Mance in his rattle shirt disguise, like looking for all the clues. Here's one. Stannis burned the wrong man. No. The wildling grinned at him through a mouth of brown and broken teeth. He burned the man he had to burn for all the world to see. We all do what we have to. Snow. Even kings. That's also a Stannis clue. Though Honestly, I'm not sure if it's more of a clue that Stannis knows that Mance is alive or one that he doesn't. And this is a great line, though, because of the subtext. We all do what we have to do, even kings. Mance has done that many times. What is he? As a king... He's had to do things that he hasn't wanted to do, but he thought were necessary. Jon Snow, when he becomes a king, assuming that happens, he's going to have to do that too. And that's part of what makes this line so brilliant. And Mance throws Jon's words back in his face. I love it. When Jon says, you flatter yourself before they start fighting. And then when they're done, Mance says, you flatter yourself. I never broke a sweat. <laughs> and when Jon says, you flatter yourself, Mance says, yeah, but I'd flatten you. <laughs> That's really good. And he ends up the fight on top of John's. We kind of did flatten him. I got the sense, and so did Nina, that Mance is getting a little bit of revenge here. Not like full revenge, because of course, like he just said, we all do what we have to do. So the thing he would want revenge on John for is lying to him. But on some level, he understands why John lied to him, because, well, it was about survival and protecting those he cared about most. So on some level, he can't hate John for it. But on another level, he's still mad at him and is probably a little happy to get to wail on him a bit. And this brings us to another recurring theme, which is the notion of practice yard heroes. John thinks there's always someone quicker and stronger. Sir Roderick had once told John and Rob, he's the man you want to face in the yard before you need to face his like upon a battlefield. That, by the way, is part of the line of thinking that takes John back to Winterfell and makes him sad, thinking about being younger and simpler times and how the and that Sir Roderick and Rob are now dead. But it's also similar to lessons we got from Brienne's point of view. She thinks a lot about her upbringing and training and how being good in the training yard means nothing if you hesitate in real battle, if you are afraid to kill, things like that. And this is funny too, because John actually has faced Rattleshirt in a real battle situation, though they didn't actually fight because, well, back in the Clash of Kings, the Lord of Bones claims Corrin's death as his own, but we all saw how eager you were to take it, mocked Ragwile. Remember, if, if you don't recall, Rattleshirt wanted them all shot. He was like, shoot them with arrows. <laughs> he didn't want to get up close. What we learned before from Tormund and from others is that Mance defeated or won the allegiance of every single leader among the free folk. They submitted to him. He didn't kill them. He defeated them. John says Mance beat the Magnar of Fen three times before he submitted. He beat him three times. He didn't kill him, obviously. So these sound kind of like practice yard fights. So Mance is actually he's like, yeah, I've done this a bunch of times. I've, I've wailed on a bunch of clan chiefs. Jon Snow, you're nothing, man. I've, I've, I beat Steer. I beat Tormund. I beat all these people. It's interesting too to see Jon fight someone who is 
better than him, but not trying to, but actually trying to win. Because Corin was better than John, but Corin wasn't trying to win. Along the same lines of what Mance told John before about how the free folk respect leadership, the line is they, quote, follow fighters. So not killers necessarily, fighters. It's, it's almost braver to beat someone and leave them alive because you're showing you're not, you're showing you're not afraid of them. And well, Mance has a lot of respect amongst the free folk because of how he carried himself as a leader. He didn't go around killing. He went around proving he was superior. He didn't go around exerting his desires. He went around proving himself. It's real easy to see why the free folk follow him when you see his skills and his toughness, his mental toughness and all that. So Melisandre is going to tell us next week on the Valarborita schedule, that is, how much more powerful she is at the Wall than she's been elsewhere before, even including Ashai. That gives us some context for the closing of the chapter and what seems to be several uses of magic on her part, paired with mentions of other possible uses of magic on her part. First off, she looks like a grit for a moment, enough so that John says her name aloud, only to be stunned a moment later that he could have made such a mistake. Now, if John knew that glamours were a thing, that's probably where his mind would have gone. Instead, he's like, how could I have thought that was a grit? Well, the answer is very simple. It's because of the glamour. And I guess that what Mel is doing is kind of trying to let him get his guard down. She wants him to trust her. But she doesn't necessarily have the best means of doing it because John is not like other men. Winning over Ghost kind of has the opposite impact. He's like, whoa, so Ghost trusts you. That must be a good sign. But it's more than trust. It isn't just, oh, she sniffed his ha- her hand and, 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 you know, wagged his tail a little, like a standard dog-trusting person situation. She goes a step further and uses some kind of magic to, keep go- to make it look like Ghost doesn't recognize John, which is, that's unsettling, as Joe points that out. Like, first of all, it's heartbreaking that in a chapter where John is thinking about how all his family is gone, so many of them are dead, um, how he has to focus on duty, how his friends are gone, how he's so unhappy that now even Ghost is not turning on him, but you know, not even recognizing him. That's, that's a little painful. The, the direwolf bond seems incorruptible, yet here we are with someone interfering with it. it we, we didn't necessarily see that as something possible, and it's a, it is a little stunning. So this is not actually winning us over. This is like, whoa, what sorcery is this? <laughs> it's, it's not positive. It's scary. In a chapter where John is thinking of everyone he's lost, so she's trying to impress him. And well, she does impress him. She's trying to win him over. And she only sort of does that. She, she more intimidates him, I think. Then she makes an indecent proposal. Quote, The Lord of Light in his wisdom made us male and female two parts of a greater whole. In our joining, there is power. Power to make life. Power to make light. Power to cast shadows. Shadows. The world seemed darker when he said it. Every man who walks the earth casts a shadow on the world. Some are thin and weak, others long and dark. You should look behind you, Lord Snow. The moon has kissed you and etched your shadow upon the ice 20 feet tall. Shadows, yeah, that's, that's the shadow on the wall, right? Mm, the moon has kissed you and etched your shadow upon the ice 20 feet tall. That is, 
casting the largest shadow, right? This is power on the wall, the Varus Riddle Reel. But he's not interested. Power is not seductive to him. He's, he's that rare type who sees power as, actually sees power as a responsibility to see something that you do not take on lightly, not something to grasp at and take whenever you can, not something to greedily grab as much of as possible. But I'm curious. If he had agreed, of course, there was never any real chance he would have. Who would she send a shadow baby after right now? I, and I, and that, the answer would change maybe even, even as soon as a few chapters from now, quite possibly. But in this moment and a little later, it's a, two questions. Ramsey? Roos? Maybe? Bloodraven? I don't think that would work because the, the ward on the cave, I don't think the shadow could get in. But it probably couldn't, it might not be able to get into Winterfell either for the same reasons. Uh, those, war, those walls have some wards on them as well. Remember Storm's End, she needed Davos to get her inside the walls because the, the shadow couldn't p- penetrate by itself. But on the other hand, these shadows apparently are more powerful than the ones she could unleash down there. So maybe they're able to break through these barriers. So it's really unclear both how much more powerful they are and who she would send them after. Really, I don't know. Shout out to our friends over at the Learned Hands pod who are both real lawyers and their podcast is all about discussing a Song of Ice and Fire legal situations. And a question I posed to them on Twitter is the Night's Watch Oath says you cannot father children. Does that apply to shadow babies? (laughs) Don't think the writers of the Night's Watch Oath considered that possibility, but I am curious how they would, uh, how the Supreme Court of Westeros would judge this gray area. Yes. Hmm. At the start of the chapter, I brought up the idea of Melisandre's seductive appeal, not just herself, but her power and her attention to it in others. This is a great example. Your wall is a queer place, but there is power here if you will use it. Power in you and in this beast. You resist it and that is your mistake. Embrace it. Use it. There's some Darth Vader in that speech, huh? Let go if you only knew the power. So we got Star Wars. What's that? Sexy Darth Vader. Sexy Darth Vader. (laughs) Relord Vader. Oh, that's it. There we go. Perfect. <laughs> so, so you got Star Wars and Indecent Proposal, and I suppose Face Off as well. So you got all sorts of different movies going on here. She's reminding him again, as has been happening a lot, of the importance of showing his power. It colors his authority. And as we pointed out, that's definitely something he needs. He has command, but it's, he doesn't have authority, right? We, he doesn't, as we've been going on and on about, he doesn't have buy-in from... His officers, his men grumble, they disagree, they complain, they argue, etc. Melisandre's power, too, is, isn't just apparent in what she's saying, but just the fact that she walks out with no gloves, no coat. I mean, what? <laughs> That's, people are looking at that and they are intimidated by it. It's a perfect example of the trappings of power. Just by looking at her, you're intimidated because you're like, why isn't she cold? <laughs> and with, we're Can only I say one. Real quick. Yeah. She has the power of like all women in their 20s who go out to the bar and wear like the tiniest little outfit and high heels. <laughs> Something like, like, like a little patch of fur like on the calf is like all you need. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> they're so powerful. All young women have the power of R'hllor. <laughs> when they're going to the club anyway. Yeah. <laughs> 
so with Bonero, we just had Bonero in the last chapter. So this is pretty, pretty powerful to have Bonero, the high priest, with Melisandre at her most powerful back-to-back chapters. So yeah, George, remember how we take note of these patterns, having these R'hllor a miniature peak here in terms of what they can do. But we also have some skin changer magic. John has this really cool moment where he slips into ghost for just a, like a second. In the shadow of the wall, the direwolf brushed up against his fingers. For half a heartbeat, the night came alive with a thousand smells, and Jon Snow heard the crackle of the crust breaking on a patch of old snow. Someone was behind him, he realized suddenly. Someone who smelled warm as a summer day. When he turned, he saw Ygritte. Oh, clearly his heightened senses are because he's using ghosts. It's something we saw with Bran, we've seen with Arya. Yeah, it seems pretty straightforward when you think about it in that light. It's a real ice and fire mashup moment too. Like I said, you got R'hllor magic, you got skin changing powers, you got overlapping here, and you got this, this concept of this natural concept of power, the shadow on the wall thing that we always think of Varys when that comes up, but it's really not about Varys necessarily. It's just that he's the one who introduced the concept to it, but Power is what we make of it, and John doesn't quite understand that. He, he wants right to be powerful, not power to be powerful. Another evocative moment is when she's telling him how to use power and, and talking about how she's more powerful at the wall. John thinks to himself, I'm not a wolf. I'll, I'll go with Joe's take here. Just wait for wins, buddy boy. <laughs> yep, yep. He will be. He will. More Star Wars. You will be. You will be. Nina brings up another point in, in terms of the how the magic works here, the logistics, the internal mechanism. Shade of the evening taste of Danny like some of her own memories. Bran, same deal. It triggers memories. When Arya goes into the house of black and white, she seems to smell things associated with Winterfell. Snow, pine needles, hot stew. So it's almost like the magic is drawing out their own memories to formulate itself, to visualize. Like how else could Melisandre look like a grit. She's never seen a grit. She didn't know what a grit looks like. Yet John was completely fooled. So clearly it was drawn out of John's mind. Either drawn out or the magic makes John see what he expects to see or makes him see what he wants to see. And we see another example of that in Melisandre's chapter when she speaks the word that undoes the spell that's on Mance. She says, John heard a word, Mance heard a word, Neither was the word that actually left her lips. They heard whatever they heard, but it wasn't what she said. So it's kind of this similar sort of similar style of conceptually displaying the magic to us as readers. And Archmaester Emma, great catch here. Melisandre is described as cloaked in darkness and memory. Yeah. So that's a direct link to what we're talking about here, straight from the text. And Melisandre also has this mm, ominous line when a sword without a hilt is still a sword, though. And a sword is a fine thing to have when foes are all about. She's saying, this is basically a statement that says the means justify the ends. And she's got a point, though. In peace times, I would not go saying that. But when it's a life and death situation, the argument that the ends justify the means is a lot easier to swallow, and sometimes it's straight up correct. You're trying to save people's lives. You can't scruple over every single point here. Some, some, we have to sacrifice honor, like 
You know, we've seen that with Ned. You have to sacrifice pride sometimes. Sometimes people have to die for other people to live. That's what John is forced with that decision. He's going to have to send some ants off to die so that the, the anthill can survive. So just a quick rundown of all the different types of magic without descriptions, just basic one, two lines here just to show how many different forms of magic were in this chapter. Glamours of Mance, glamour of herself into a grit, the ghost trickery. I don't know what exactly is going on there. Is that a glamour or not? I don't know because smell was seemed to be impacted. Like ghosts didn't even seem to recognize John's smell. Whereas in, you know, in the seal and the cat could still recognize Arya in her disguise. And I wonder if that's sight or smell or both. I'm not sure. Either way, she suggests a shadow baby. We obviously don't have that happen, but the topic is broached. Uh, she reveals her visions of Alice Arya. So talking about visions, her unnatural heat, uh, not being cold. Then there's this line, it seemed as if pale sorceress flames were playing about her fingers, which reminds us of that line from The Forsaken, of woman with pale flames. Uh, so there's a lot of magic. That, that's only her magic too. I didn't even mention the skin changing stuff. So mm. yet there's also some dreams here. This might be supernatural. Uh, here's one that Joe pointed out to us. This is Dolores Ed's uh, quote. I had a frightening dream last night, my lord. Dolores Ed confessed. You were my steward, fetching my food and cleaning up my leavings. I was Lord Commander with never a moment's peace. John did not smile. Your nightmare, my life. That's maybe more wordplay or death. Your nightmare, my death. Yes, John, being Lord Commander is going to lead to his death. And well... Which will lead to Dolores Ed. Will Dolores Ed become Lord Commander? I wonder about that. The TV show certainly gave us that. But the TV show also really, really reduced the Night's Watch cast like it did with the cast in general. Because it had to. That's not a complaint so much as a accepting of how things need to be to make it all work. So maybe Ed was made Lord Commander on the show because they just were out of named characters. But maybe that was their plan all along because they knew that he would be made Lord Commander. Maybe George told them that. And maybe they both, they just stumbled on it because yeah. it makes sense. It could be a coincidence, yeah. But it, still, it's again, this, this comment is that John's life is all about duty. You know, like, he's overwhelmed with burden. And that's what makes this flash of a grit so potent to him is that it's another, it's something, it was a failure. It's a, it's, Something that he couldn't have done both. He couldn't have both done his duty of the Night's Watch and been a good lover to Ygritte. Those things just cannot coexist. But John can't really accept that. He's the kind of guy that thinks there's always more he could have done. We get a little hint, you know, we haven't forgotten, but it's important to note these things when they come up. They're milestones because of how George tells us the patterns within his reminders. And what I'm referring to is that Benjamin is mentioned. It's just thrown in there and that's that's... Sort of like what I was saying at the beginning, how George managed to sneak in so many members of George's of, of John's family, even even Benjamin, even Catelyn, who you know Catelyn isn't a blood relative, but still part of the family that he grew up with. The twins, Aaron and Emric, Nina points out their names are a little similar to Arik and Eric, who were the uh, Kingsguard who fought on the same side and then on opposite sides when the Dance of the Dragons broke out. I kind of doubt Aaron and Emric will fight each other. In circumstances like that, but maybe one of them will become a white and the other will have to fight him. That would be a little on the nose. 
Karen Sita sends a super chat and says, didn't think I would be reading pro and anti-ants arguments in the chat today. Love this group. Thank you, Karen Sita. Yes. Uh, you never know where our discussions will go. Sometimes they go to seemingly odd places, yet those odd things tend to fit really well, as odd as they may seem from a distance. Just like how people look like ants from a distance. You get up close, you see the detail, and you're like, yep, that really does work. So yes, thank you for saying that. We love you too, everyone. This is I'm thankful for Val Iraritis. I'm thankful for the Song of Ice and Fire community. Good time to drop some thanks since we just had American Thanksgiving over here. And yeah, I could go on. I'm full of gratitude, even more so than I'm full of leftovers. Scott W. says, I think Mance intended to rescue Arya from Winterfell. That's why he needed the Spearwives. He had the ruse planned. That is entirely possible, but I don't know how he would have known they were in Winterfell. I think uh, it's part of what makes this whole thing a conundrum, but it's a good, it's a good point. It's a good thing to bring up. You wonder what Mance's ultimate goal was beyond what his orders were. Lady Leaf also says, I thought sneaking into Winterfell was the original plan. That's why he wanted women to go better with his bard guys. Yeah, well, remember, folks, that if he shows up as Rattle Shirt, why would Alice trust him? That's what that's to me. That's why he brought the girls was because they would trust these washerwomen's spear wives. Uh, AJ Borkar says, "Could she have used a powder to trick Ghost?" Nina suggested the same thing, uh, and <laughs> Shea says she had meat in her pocket. <laughs> I mean, it would work, right? <laughs> yeah, I think I think Ashe has got it right here. <laughs> yeah, I think a powder is possible. Um, I would I would think if she had used a powder, George would have been tempted to mention that because she thinks about her powders next next chapter, but doesn't bring that up. So yeah, it's got to be possible. I think that's po- like the opposite of basilisk blood. Like basilisk blood, you give them that and they go crazy killing anything around them. It would be like the opposite where you become friends with whoever you give this to. <laughs> this chapter is super different the first time through, isn't it? Not only does one not know of the multiple glamours, but we haven't had Melisandre's chapter yet. And so that's where a lot of the certainty on her comes from. Before having Melisandre's chapter, when you read this chapter for the first time, we didn't yet know whether or not she was intentionally misleading people, whether the big open question of whether she was misguided or intentionally misleading. And really, it seems to be a combination of the two, but it's more of the misguided than the intentionally. She's certainly not evil. And that was a possibility. Like a lot of people were like, Melisandre might be evil. We were wondering about that back in the day. Now we know for 99.9% sure that's not the case. But that just makes it so much interesting to think back on how that was. The Raven is in this chapter. Most of the time, the raven stays in John's room. Nina did a nice long look through of like every raven example. And that seems to be the pattern, which is interesting because the raven hasn't interacted with Melisandre that we've seen. And that would be interesting if they did because we got blood raven in that raven most probably. And Melisandre, when she sees blood raven in her vision, she thinks of him as an agent of the great other which she's almost certainly wrong about, but still it's interesting, these interpretations. And if she could see that same spirit residing in the raven, could she see that? Uh, That would freak her out maybe. At least she'd have something to say about it. I'd be very curious. In this chapter, the the raven says bones when talking about Rattleshirt and says die when Alistair, like right at the beginning of the chapter when Alistair Thorne says, you're sending me out to die. But, The Raven says die a lot. The Raven repeats that word many times throughout the series, so I'm not sure that's 
anything to be too excited about or to be wary of or to, to look deeper into. Uh, and the, the Raven also says snow, unprompted. No one says snow. The Raven just starts saying that. But that's another thing the Ravens have said snow many times. In fact, Alistair Thorne yells out during the election of John. He's like, oh, all the Ravens say snow. That's, you know, that's nothing. Nonsense. And then the bird lands on John's shoulder <laughs> and says kettle. And they're like, oh. The reference to bones maybe is a mention of the glamour. He might be referring to the bones as part as as crucial to maintaining Rattleshirt's glamour. Maybe that's the reference here. Kate Crone also brings up the glamour and wonders what's going on on the practice yard when John notices that once Mance is wearing armor, he's, he looks taller and his shoulders look broader. And John's a little confused because once again. He's not thinking of the possibility of glamour. If John was considering, oh, maybe it's a glamour, <laughs> that might enter his thinking. But he doesn't even know glamours are a thing. So when Mance looks different without the bones, well, Rattleshirt looks different without the bones because he's Mance, John doesn't know what he's seeing. So the question is, what's happening? Why is, is the glamour fading? Is, is What's going on? Well, what we're told about glamours is that they sometimes don't hold up under scrutiny. It's they work pretty well because people aren't actually trying to think about what's going on. They're not wary of the possibility of a glamour, as John isn't. It doesn't even enter their mind. So it tends to work. In that sense, it works off of that unknowing. But when they're in the practice yard, John's staring right at Mance, looking at all the details, and so the illusion doesn't hold up as well. Mance's skill with the two-handed sword puts people in mind of Arthur Dane. And considering how hard a time John is having against Mance, and he's baffled at Mance's ability to move that sword so quickly. Meanwhile, John, too, is thinking about his own sword, which is a practice sword, not Longclaw, which is lighter. Now, take those two concepts together. The Valyrian steel is lighter, and that John is amazed at how fast Mance is moving with his sword. Well, that is what you get when you take Arthur Dane wielding Dawn. That is how hard Arthur Dane must have been to fight, because you got someone who probably is better than Mance, even wielding Valyrian steel, well, not Valyrian steel, but Dawn is basically the equivalent of Valyrian steel as far as we can tell, including its lightness. So, man, how did those seven beat those three at the Tower of Joy? Something that Howland Reed did using magic or being sneaky because no one beat Arthur just straight up. And this is the, be this is the closest we get to, to understanding how good Arthur was. Some people take this concept way too far and, and theorize that Mance is Arthur or that Mance is Rhaegar, but I am not a believer in those theories myself. Okay, that is the end of John 6. Before we go to Davos 4, I want to give a pitch for our Patreon uh, campaign slash page, whatever you want to call it. I'll give, I'm going to be a little more detailed than usual. Usually I just shout it out and tell you all that it's there, that it exists, it's a good way to support us, etc. But we have a, a fully scripted version of Davos 4 chapter already available for patrons. It's an hour long. It goes deep into his mind. It's a more detailed breakdown of what actually happened. But there's less about predictions and theories on what's coming next. More on what came before. There's historical theories on there. And of course, because it's a scripted episode, it has higher production values instead of me and Ashea reading quotes. We're pretty good at reading quotes. We have people who are really good at reading quotes for those. Uh, Martin Lewis, McCall Schick, people like that who are very, 
couple steps above us, on, at least on voice talent. So that's another bonus there. While I'm at it, though, if you're going to pay up to up to $2 a month is all it would take to join us on Patreon and get access to that episode, you would also get our special episodes on Kevin's epilogue, the A Feast for Crows prologue, a bunch of Where Are They Now episodes, which is sort of a catch-up on what happened to characters who were mentioned early in the story so we know where they're at as of Winds of Winter. There's one for Tyrion. There's one for Arya. There's one for the Tourney of the Hand. We also have on Patreon a bunch of episodes, Valerie's episodes edited so that they only contain one POV. In other words, there's, you can listen to only the Arya chapters. You can listen to only the Ned chapters. You can listen to only John all the way through. So we have that available without having to skip around. You can just go straight to the John, straight to the Neds, etc. We also have a bonus episode on Gagasos, the city of blood magic, which was almost the 10th free city. And then it was destroyed by disease. It's a great story. A lot of fun magical theorizing in there. We also have several panels that we were at, different conventions that were recorded. Most of the panels we released to the public. A few of them we never got around to. And a few others we released to patrons only. And one, one in, we're going to release still. And a few that we're going to release still. You're right. So there's going to be, this list is going to grow. But one that I want to highlight is we did one with Michael Bookshelf Stud on Conan and Robert E. Howard in particular, which is a major influence on George R. R. Martin. Conan is the first ever swords and sorcery story. Well before Lord of the Rings. So that's all very cool. So that's my pitch for our Patreon. Sign up. For as little as $2 a month, you get other benefits at other levels like shout-outs, access to our scripts, fun things like that, access to our Slack, all that kind of stuff. I hope that makes it sound well worth it. And of course, you also will be supporting us in that sense. So let's get to Davos 4. The one where the North remembers, aka pack your bagos for Skagos, Davos. It's unusual to see a final chapter from a POV in the book so early. But I suppose that's part of the nature of a book with so many POVs. Bran's final chapter in this book is two weeks from now. That's a bit of a parallel as Davos' story is now tied to the Starks and Northern Mysteries and Histories. Those things will be on pause, while the wars and intrigue in the North take center stage in the meantime. If you are familiar with the site, Tower of the Hand, long-running, excellent site that covers Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones, all that, they had a long-running vote on what the best chapter is, most popular chapter in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. Now, this vote was taken before TV. Probably wouldn't have changed after TV. If anything, this chapter may have risen in the esteem after TV because TV didn't spoil this plot line at all. TV just didn't go there. So out of 344 chapters, Tower of the Hands vote, this chapter is number one. So that is really saying something. It may not be your number one, but recognize that the fandom loves this chapter. I'm right there with y'all. I love this chapter. I'm not sure I would call it number one, but I don't really roll that way. I don't really pick number ones like that. I don't pick favorites like that. But I do recognize this one is a worthy recipient of that title. One of the many benefits of this chapter too, uh, of it being so beloved and unspoiled, is there's so many ways to approach it. For example, we're going to say a lot today on this chapter, most of which is not covered in our Patreon episode on this very chapter and vice versa. There's just so much to say about it that, well, 
We got we can cover it in different ways without overlap. The first line is even in the gloom of the wolf's den, Davos Seaworth could sense that something was awry this morning. Yeah, I mean, this is right off the bat. This is so cool. This chapter starts off with with something somewhat familiar. I mean, Davos in a cell. Well, when we first see this chapter, we've already read A Feast for Crows and we've been told that Davos's head gets cut off. So we might be expecting that to happen in this chapter. So it's a neat bit of misdirection. That's one thing that changes from, from read to one read to the next. But it's fun, like some of these other chapters where you were caught off guard by something to retrace our steps and look for the underpinnings of that surprise. Why is this chapter so popular? It certainly isn't just those surprises because, well, surprises are only surprises the first time. You don't reread the chapter to be re-surprised by the same things. You might be surprised by new things you didn't catch before, but you're not going to be, oh, Davos gets out of jail. Wow, (laughs) the North remembers. Amazing, I didn't know that. So the chapter being so popular, I don't know. I mean, who knows why things are popular? That's not something you, you can generally point to direct evidence for, but we have some thoughts on that. It feeds a lot of the things we were starved for on top of just being generally awesome. It has a great dose of the sort of world building we're simultaneously used to but can't ever get enough of. And the world building is mostly northern flavored, which we get less of than the south in part due to lack of ancient history writing in the north. And also because I think George just wants to play it that way. He wants the north to be a little more mysterious. It's the place we're first introduced to. So keeping it that way, we're, we're, we're more rooted in the North as readers because it's the place we started. It's the house we have the most maybe sympathy for, the characters we're the most familiar with. So it's a win for the Starks too. And th- that said, that's something we love about this chapter, something that feeds us is that the Starks have not been getting wins. They haven't been getting things going their way very often. And this is awesome. Not only is someone coming to the fore, He's a powerful, devoted, hidden ally. Not just an ally, but a powerful one. And he seems honest and forthright, and his loyalty seems unquestionable given all these circumstances and details. We haven't seen any of that in a while. And it comes with the reveal of one of those missing Starks. It's yet another bit of misdirection. For a minute there, Davos was like, whoa, Rickon is here? And as readers, the first time through, I think most of us expected that to be like, whoa, because White Harbor was mentioned as a possible destination for OSHA. So we didn't know they were in Skagos until this chapter. And that's part of what's awesome about this chapter too is the mention of Skagos and Davos is going to go there. You're like, whoa, talk about a, a payoff, like Chekhov's Cannibal Island is finally getting used. We're like, whoa. That's so cool. I mean, Davos, kind of a fearless smuggler, but he's afraid of this place's reputation. So that just, that sells us on on how awesome this is. It sounds full of potential to be interesting. Speaking of places we've done an episode on, long ago, we did an episode on Skagos. And two, finally, finally, someone is using like major trickery and intrigue on the phrase and bolts, kind of turning it around on them. And the Lannisters too. Someone who saw that it was Ramsay and not Theon who destroyed Winterfell, Wex. Like, we get that, too. We get a witness. Someone, Wyman Manderley, willing to sacrifice their honor with face with no alternatives, i.e. because of threats to their children. Even Ned Stark bowed to that lesser evil when faced with that same ultimatum. Honor is precious in the North and in the South to a lot of people, but honor was not more precious to Ned Stark than Sansa's life, nor is honor more important to Wyman Manderley than Willis Manderley. 
We get secret passageways. We get a map of the North. We have awesome dialogue. The competition is tough for best A Song of Ice and Fire chapter, so it's really saying something that this one is up to the challenge. Sir Bartimus's tales, man, such great, interesting stuff. With him and the sight of the huge, oversized, greedy, and angry werewood, which really gives the vibe of Wyman himself. There's a lot of this northern lore going on here. We don't get a lot of that, like I said. It's, it's, we're kind of starved for that. Wyman isn't starved, <laughs> but we're starved for this sort of information. As we've seen in a few places, George likes to use the, old, the classic symbolism of losing an eye for knowledge. Well, what does losing a leg mean here? Sir Bartimus lost a leg and gained power. In, he didn't gain knowledge, he gained power in, in land. He gained the Wolfstan. And, well, that made him look inward. He's an interesting guy. Quote, Sir Bartimus had no interest in the world outside or indeed anything that had happened since he lost his leg to a riderless horse and a maester's saw. He had come to love the wolf's den, however, and liked nothing more than to talk about its long and bloody history. So he's up there with old Dan and Osha, but with a more specialized knowledge about his area rather than the whole North. Although certainly some of these things would have happened elsewhere in the North too. And he's higher born than either of them. Not real high born because his family apparently didn't have land before him. He earned the wolf's den, not his forebears. Still, being connected to higher-born people would give you a tighter connection to the type of people who would be in charge of performing sacrifices and such. In fact, it would probably be lords or ladies leading those sorts of things. After all, they don't have priests in the North. But that's tricky to understand, right? Like, they don't have priests performing the sacrifices. Well, who was that woman in Bran's vision then? With the bronze sickle that sliced open the captive who Bran could taste the blood. That wasn't just some woods witch, right? I don't think. So they don't have priests or priestesses, but they still have like people that are revered or leaders in that sense. Val might be the closest thing we have to that right now. I guess there's some other characters like Morna White Mask or Mother Mole who might sort of fill a role kind of like that, but not entirely clear. It seems there's some foreshadowing in the history as told by Sir Bartimus. Surprise, surprise, that never happens. <laughs> The Wolf's Den was raised by King John Stark to defend against raiders, okay? In our Patreon episode, we get into the, some more of the detail about that times. Here, we're going to focus on what that might tell us going forward. John Snow, John Stark, okay, so we can't, it's hard to miss that possible comparison, which I think is where we're meant to look. John Snow, he's in charge of defending the North against outside incursions. That's kind of like defending against raiders. The Wolf's Den was taken by slavers. Perhaps a parallel to what we're seeing at Hardhome. We got slave ships coming to haul off wildlings. The anecdote tells us that a long, cruel winter fell and even the white knife itself froze. And then Brandon Ice-Eyes Stark finished off the slavers who had taken hold of the wolf's den during this time. So we got John Stark, then Bran Stark, Bran Ice-Eyes coming in afterwards, finishing off the job, which sounds like the order of things are going to happen in A Song of Ice and Fire, John maybe becomes king in the north, yields to maybe Danny, and then maybe we have Bran coming along later. And if the white knife is frozen in this historical example, think about how bad it must have been further north. Don't forget how big the north is and how relatively south White Harbor is relative to the rest of the north. Ice Eyes, the nickname Brandon Ice Eyes Stark, 
if our brand Stark is touched by the others a bit, and, and I don't necessarily mean like he was touched in his dream by the Night King, but that is a decent enough parallel to what I'm trying to get at. I'm more thinking symbolically, like he ceases to be Bran Stark. He's just the Green Seer or something like that. And that's a little dark, right? That's a little ominous if he loses some of who he is. Because Bran is a good kid. He's compassionate and kind and thoughtful. And we don't want him to lose that. That would be dark if he lost some of that. But Ice Eyes could also be how his, his job, his purpose is to focus on winter and end it. Like, ice is the only thing he's thinking about. Ice eyes is what he's thinking about, looking at. That's his focus. Could be like that. And this ancestor, Ice Eyes, Brandon, offered slavers to the gods as a sacrifice, stringing entrails through the trees, forcing them outside without clothes. That doesn't sound like something our brand would do. But again, if our brand is going to change, then I don't know. Maybe that could happen. And of course, that brings us to the idea that there was blood sacrifice to the heart trees, a, a concept new as of this chapter, or at least confirmed as of this chapter. There's some hints of it before, but nowhere before this is it flat out stated in uncertain terms. And then later we get more confirmation in the world of ice and fire. So is that foreshadowing too? I mean, five chapters from now is Brand's chapter. And in that chapter is that same example that I've already referred to about the woman with the sickle cutting a captive, uh, sacrificing him. If Jojen paste is real, that's a sacrifice. That could be what we're getting set up for with talk like this. Nina reminds us of what it was in the world of ice and fire that, were, that is brought up. It says, Yandel writes about Maester Yorick's book, Wed to the Sea, being an account of the history of White Harbor from its earliest days Yes, blood sacrifices persisted as recently as five centuries ago. And only two centuries ago, the Targaryen arrived. So that's pretty recent. And that's something we definitely get into with our Patreon episode and with our Manderly episode. Davos doesn't directly make the connection in his mind since the chapter ends so abruptly, but all the things he's been hearing from Sir Bartimus about the ancient North, well, Skagos is a place that is behind the times. It hasn't evolved as quickly. It hasn't progressed as quickly. Some of the old habits die hard and they took longer to die in the first place. The people are stubborn in there in many ways. Oh, what's it, from what it sounds like anyway, and we're going to see how true that really is. Will we see sacrifices or a sacrifice through Davos's eyes or hear about them? Will we see cannibalism on Skagos, unicorns? Well, here's the quote. Here's the line that terrifies him. For half a heartbeat, Davos considered asking Wyman Manderley to send him back to the wolf's den, to Ser Bartimus with his tails and Garth with his lethal ladies. In the den, even prisoners ate porridge in the morning. But there were other places in this world where men were known to break their fast on human flesh. As Joe Buckley writes, what an ending. Skagos. Davos is going to Skagos, the wildest of wild places with the wildest of, wildest of wildlings, and he's going out to bring Rickon, who was already pretty wild when he lived in Winterfell. Our Davos, who once risked his life to send an important boy across the sea, is now going to bring another one back. It's going to be dangerous, it's going to be include mysteries, and it's going to be thrilling. Well said, Joe, and I totally agree. Cannibalism is not only suggested by Skagos, but becomes reality later in this book at Winterfell and in other places. Wyman is very clear to Davos that he gave guest gifts to the three Freys, meaning his duty to them as a host was over, meaning there's no curse in the eyes of the gods if he kills them, which he, of course, does. 
Unlike what the phrase did to his son Wendell and King Rob and so many others, there was no guest gift. That was just straight up violating guest right. Manderly says, perhaps you understand then to Davos about the meaning of giving guest gifts in this particular circumstance. Well, most of us probably didn't understand what that meant first time through. But now we know for sure, not only did it mean killing those phrase, which that was suggested, but nothing about eating them was suggested. That was a total surprise. So that's cool. And I wonder if he's going to do more damage against the phrase. I mean, he's probably not done. He got three of them and, well, he wants more, I'm sure. But I think I'm a little more concerned with what he's going to do to the Boltons. They're far more dangerous in the North, far more entrenched, and have suffered less reprisal than the phrase by far so far. Ramsay muddies the waters for other snows. Thanks to the terrible prejudice against bastards, even Lord Wyman looks down on them. That could definitely be a problem for John, as we're, this chapter is bringing up vibes of ruling the North later. Obviously, they're pushing for Rickon. And that's one, one of many reasons to think that Wyman might not want to back Jon Snow. Could be problematic. Robert Glover expresses the same reprehensible view on Ramsay Snow that he unfortunately applies to all bastards. He says the evil is in his blood, said Robert Glover. He's a bastard born of rape, a snow, no matter what the boy king says. A couple of y'all cited some good follow-up quotes here. Archmaster Emesis Wyman's follows that up with, was snow ever so black? <laughs> That's great. Snow ever so black. Jon Snow, wearing all black. Perfect. And Tree Girl says, points this out back to Jon's earliest chapters when he thinks black was always his color. Jon Snow in black, a king? Yeah, that's, that's Rhaegar's colors, the Targaryen colors. Yeah, black dragon with a red, red dragon with black colors. But also he's a Night's Watch Lord Commander, Night's Watch Brother, all in black. Fits really well. And of course, we always have to think of Aegon the Dragon Fane. Yeah. Who wore all black. Yes, that's a big one. And is John going to le- end up legitimized? We're not sure. It seems possible. Interestingly, we have Robert Glover here, Galbert Glover elsewhere. In the show, the Glovers were actually one of the houses that recurred and their lord was a regular character. They did not show up for Jon Snow. So that's more evidence potentially that there's going to be a rift between in northern leadership even after the Boltons and Fraser are potentially gone. They They may not know which Stark to follow. Now, John would never fight Rickon for the North, even by proxy. But it could definitely get sticky if Rob's will names John King over Rickon. John can't gainsay that. John can't say no. I mean, he could abdicate, maybe, but would he abdicate to Rickon? To a boy? I don't know. He might. But what happens if Rob's will comes after Rickon's reveal? What if John has accepted the mantle of King and then Rickon appears? I'm like, wait, uh, what do we do? Does he back out of backing Rickon back out of back being king, what happens? It's, I don't know, but it does get really sticky. So one thing the show might has taught us, even if the circumstances will be very different, is this could be resolved by Rickon's death. That could be how this stickiness is done away with. If Rickon dies, then obviously he's no longer a claimant and problem, that would be tragic, but it, the problem at least would take care of itself. Davos, let's talk about him internally, like his internal monologue through some of this. He because it gives us some interesting contrast to other characters and it talks to the nature of death. There's no sight or sounds. He's completely shut off from the world. He's got, there's chains, there's the sounds of a jail, but 
the worst part is not the dying, it's the not knowing when or how. So he's in this state of, of stress, doesn't sleep well, he's getting nice food, but he thinks he's going to die at some point soon. And we, first time through, don't have a strong reason to disagree, maybe. We think, well, maybe Davos isn't going to die. Really hold on to the evidence of, this, of the good food, meaning something that it, well, that it really did turn out to mean. And we got, a, after the history lesson of him talking to Sir Bartimus, this is when he's writing his letter to Maria, his wife. And he says, I was a better smuggler than a knight. He had written to his wife, a better knight than a king's hand, a better king's hand than a husband. It's very refreshing to see this sort of thing. First of all, it's romantic. It's beautiful. But after Tyrion and the much, much worse Jorah, you have men who have very little humility, who are not willing to accept responsibility for the wrongs they've inflicted on others. You have the opposite. Davos is a vastly better husband than those two. Da- Tyrion tries to alleviate his own fault in his memories. He pushes the blame on Tywin and Jaime for what happened to Tysha. He sympathizes with her, but he doesn't go all the way in accepting his role in it. Tyrion, yes, Jaime and Tywin were the bigger evil, but you participated. You owe some, you're definitely culpable. But here Davos is doing the opposite. Rather than shirking, rather than trying to like find a way to not be responsible, he does the opposite. He's like, how can I take more responsibility? He's trying to take responsibility for things that he didn't do. Like he has no responsibility for some of the things he's trying to take responsibility for. And that makes him similar to John. That's something we see from John. John is seeing power as a duty, not as something to gratify himself or something to enhance himself. In this, perhaps, thematic tie-in, this similar attitude between these two characters might be setting up them having a strong relationship like we saw in the show. Davos and John getting together, being friendly and respecting each other. And yeah, the letter to Mar... It's, it's one of the more tender romantic moments in the series. Nina writes, he's harder on himself than he deserves. And yes, one, you know, it's too bad that the world he lives in, he can't go see his wife, right? Like that's not something people would maybe criticize him for, but it's war and he's the hand of the king. Like this is, he's, these are his duties. Without working for Stannis, they wouldn't even have the household that they have now. So it's, he's not going to give up on that too easily. So it's nice to see these tender human moments. His wife probably would have taken her her son and uh, her husband over that household. Yeah, that's true. Probably. Probably. We Maybe. don't know, but... She might be like a forward thinker. Like she's thinking of like generations of... of yeah, like, oh, we lose a son, but I still have... Yeah, we don't yeah. know her, but just guessing. Yeah, it's really hard to put words or thoughts into Maria's mind or mouth without having ever seen her even for a second. I do tend to think well <laughs> of her though, just because I think well of Davos yeah. in general. I feel like his his wife has to be half decent and grew up also as a peasant, you know? Maybe she's more like Stannis than we think. <laughs> <laughs> Mari is actually quite like that. She's really disciplinarian, loveless, just grinds her jaw. And I was like, ah, that explains a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I love that idea. <laughs> Nina notes the Reach influence seems to still be strong around White Harbor, given that the name of the would-be executioner is Garth, which is really not a northern name, but it's certainly a gardener named Garth Gardner, right? So that's a little hint of George making sure to stay strong in his details on where these cultural influences come from. I like that. In a chapter where Wyman reveals to Davos the truth about the sack of Winterfell and the survival of the Stark Boys, Wyman himself borrows a trick from Ramsay and Theon. Theon was able to convince the people of Winterfell as 
well as the rest of Westeros, that he had killed Bran and Rickon by showing tarred heads, he said were theirs, which Wyman, of course, does the same with Davos's head. And he's like, well, this is Davos's head, but it's not really. So that's a cool little parallel. Also, Nina, with a nice catch here, there's an, a, a real-world historical anecdote. Charles II hid in a tree. After the royalists lost the Battle of Worcester and the end of the English Civil War, King Charles II fled England. And when told that one house he was looking to hide in was not safe, Charles spent a day hiding in the branches of an oak tree where he could see parliamentary troops below hunting for him. He was never caught and successfully escaped England, much as Wex successfully escaped Winterfell. That's pretty cool. There's often a historical anecdote that fits. And most of the time we suspect George is just borrowing from real history, but occasionally it's probably a coincidence. Uh, so this is also a little more on the, the, the fake Rickon reveal. Before Davos sees that it's not Rickon being revealed to him, he considers that whoever this kid's about to be shown is a fake. <laughs> he says, Stannis wouldn't make common cause with a fake, <laughs> which is hilarious because Stannis is the fake. <laughs> and he's leading his men to rescue an Arya that is an Arya. <laughs> so <laughs> there's all sorts of that actually going on. There's a red wedding call back here from Wyman. He says, Roose Bolton wants me on my knees and beneath the velvet courtesy, he shows the iron mail, which is how he dressed for the red wedding. He had his uh, regular clothes on the outside, but his mail underneath. And of course, that is what Catelyn felt his arm and realized the jig was up. We talked about Davos rescuing Skagos. I mean, rescuing Rickon from Skagos. It's a parallel to Alan Oakenfist rescuing Viserys, the future Viserys I sorry, Viserys II, from uh, after the Dance of the Dragons, because um, he was captured during one of the battles as just a little boy. That is a good segue to point out that we have an episode on Alan Oakenfist that contains a lot of those parallels. It's a, one of our Fire and Blood episodes. Rennie, Archbishop Rennie wants to know, how did uh, Osha and Rickon get to Skagos? We wonder if we'll get that story told to us. And Rennie also wonders if we're going to get any... White Walker tales from there. If their knowledge of the others is different, like Skagos being an island, we wonder how the others are a factor there. Certainly winter is, but do the others ever show up there? Can they cross over? Can they, do they have a way to be there that doesn't involve crossing water? How does that work in general? Good question. Guinevere Greenstone says, despite White Harbor being the most faithful to the seven, Sir Bartimus shows their history of worshiping and sacrificing to the heart trees is well remembered. Do you think this foreshadows that there may be a strong faction that would react to famine and sickness by stringing up live sacrifices with their entrails hanging out? Any ideas on who would be a likely candidate for sacrifice? Yes, actually, I do think that. I'm glad you asked this question. It is a fairly major point that we raise in our second White Harbor episode. Our second Mandalay episode is called Winter is Coming to White Harbor. And it, ref it we certainly talk about this reference of the white knife freezing over and how that might cause famine and, and other situations. And yes, I specifically discuss a religious reaction to that and perhaps a return to more devotion to the old gods, seeing as how people would be thinking that it's winter it's the old gods are the ones causing the problem because it's winter is causing the famine. So that would be pushback against the seven, potentially. Who would be sacrificed? Maybe a septon. That might be a little too much. Maybe R'hllor worshippers? I don't know where they'd come from, but basically people who speak out, basically mob rule could lead to a lot of possibilities there. 
Um, and I do not think Willis Manderley is going to be a capable leader in such circumstances given the trauma he's already faced along these same lines. He starved. He was forced to starve at Heron Hall. He was forced to, to be a cannibal. So I, I think that being faced with this situation might just, he might not be able to handle it. On the other hand, maybe he'll rise to the occasion. But this is a, this is already more than I wanted to say about something we've already covered elsewhere. So check out our part two Manderley to, if you want more on that, because it's, it's a deep topic. Also, she asked, does Wex's ability to communicate show that Jamie is being too confident that Ill and Payne will never share his secrets? Yeah, that's entirely possible that someone could talk to Ill and Payne and ask him the right yes-no questions, which is what's being told here as how they got through to Wex. Very possible that Ilan will reveal some things. I don't know who he could reveal them to. Uh, the circumstances are hard to figure. Maybe he's captured in battle. I don't know, because he is in the wet Riverlands right now, so he is out there. So yeah, good catch, Guinevere. Good question. So if there's any part of this chapter we didn't cover today, well, that's another reason to finally take that plunge and become a member Westorian. Join our Patreon. You get another hour of scripted content on this chapter, as well as all those other things I mentioned, as well as the satisfaction of supporting what is hopefully one of your favorite podcasts. If you're listening all the way through to the end of the episode, it's a good chance that's the case. Thank you all for being here today. Last week, we covered 134 minutes, 51 seconds. This week, it was 134 minutes, 44 seconds. That's right, only seven seconds difference. How cool is that? So far, we've covered 1,186 minutes out of the 2,922. We are just past 40%, 40.6%. As always, check the video, compare it to the podcast version, see how much gets edited out. Maybe that helps you determine which you prefer. Oh, we're both, if you prefer that. Don't forget to like the video, comment if you feel so inclined. If you listen on podcast side, please leave a review and or rating. That makes a big difference to us in, ter in terms of catching the algorithm's attention and getting us shared elsewhere by those automated functions. Today, we mentioned a really large number of scripted episodes that we've done in the past that allow you to go deeper into rabbit holes. Here, we mentioned Fire and Blood Oakenfist, which was made in February 2019. We mentioned the Doom of Valyria episode briefly. That was made back in November 2014. We mentioned the Three-Eyed Blood Raven briefly as well. That was made in March 2019. That goes deep on Blood Raven's time after he was in the South. So it's, it's all his Northern time. Our Werewood tour is pretty relevant to if you want to get more information on why the White Harbor tree seems to look a little bit Wyman Manor. That's actually a pattern. The tree face is looking like the Lord in that area. It's really interesting. So check that out. We did those all the way back in 2014. Manderley's part one and two were both in 2018. Number one is all about the history. That's where you can get into some of this ancient stuff about sacrifices and heart trees and things like that all this ancient cool stuff. And part two deals with a lot of what's coming, possibilities for winter there, for starvation and cannibalism. Skagos we did way back in August 2013, one of our oldest episodes, still relevant now. We did our North Remembers chapter. Like I said, that's the Patreon version of this one in December 2017. I mentioned Ashai and Melisandre's chapter. A great way to prime yourself for her next week is to watch our or listen to our Ashai episode, which was done back in April 2016. 
I also mentioned Great Empire of the Dawn, which was a few months later. And whew, we talked about long dead Starks, so why not throw in the Crypts of Winterfell while we're at it? I may as well mention, you know, oh, 10 episodes from our catalog while we're at it here. So I hope you all find more rabbit holes to delve into. If you're reaching the end of Valar Reedus currently, well, you've got places to go. Head back into our catalog and enjoy yourself. And we'll be back next week with another one. Oh, thanks to Egg on the Six for a late super chat here. Sending a happy birthday. Appreciate that. Thank you very much. Appreciate the birthday wishes. Next time, next week, four chapters, back to four. Daenerys Five, Astaporocalypse, a.k.a. The Pale Mare's First Rise. Melisandre, straight out of a shy, a.k.a. A Thousand Skulls and John. Reek Three, A Peaceful Land, A Terrified People, a.k.a. My Dinner with Boltons. And finally, Tyrion 8, The Gang Meets Makoro, a.k.a. It's Always Doomy in Valyria. <laughs> yeah, he actually asks, why is the sky, why does the sun look like that? <laughs> I couldn't resist that one. Thank you everyone for coming. Appreciate the live comments. The live chat is always super fun. You guys are one of our important anchors if it weren't for you guys, we wouldn't do these as live streams. We would just record these on our own. And that's less fun. It's a lot more fun doing them live with interactions with you all, occasionally catching my mistakes or adding extra detail or throwing real-world references at us or just, just having a good time. It really does mean a lot to us. Thanks to our mods over on Facebook for posting the chapters, leading the discussions there. Same goes for Discord, Slack, Facebook, and Flick. Everywhere else, all of you all who support us or discuss us anywhere, we love it. We appreciate it. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld for our video intro and for the maps you see behind us. His site is claradox.de. That's K-L-A-R-A-D-O-X dot D-E. Thanks to Kevin McLeod for the Valar reread us intro music. Thanks to Jesse uh, Koval and Joey Townsend for our regular History of Westeros music intro and outro. Thanks to our Benjineer for the sound quality assistance. Thanks to our many patrons who support us financially, making all this viable in that sense, keeping our lights on, our internet stable. And, well, there's not much people can do about storms knocking out our power, but we'll have to call up the storm god for that one. As always, we like to recommend our friends over at Here Be Dragons, who tend to be starting right around the time we're finishing. Today... They're discussing The Mandalorian, which we're big fans of. So, of course, we're going to shout them out no matter what they're discussing, but especially today because it's The Mandalorian. <laughs> good stuff. If you're caught up on the, on the Mandalorian, I'm sure you'll have a good time chatting that with them. If you're not, well, get on it, friends. Mandalorian's a lot of fun. Good times. Anyway, that's it for today. We will see you next time with more Valar Reredis. Until then, stay safe, stay happy. See you then.